you know, when we talked about doing this for the first time, we were like, well, where do we back into this at? Or how do we back into this? Because it's such a huge topic to wrap our head around. But I think I got this from David Fowler. I can't, what did I send you? What was it called? Oh, man, we got so many things in our text thread that were going back and forth that you sent me. DMX and Jay-Z. That was an amazing. Such an amazing story. (laughs) You don't, and uh, yeah, you don't think of, well, it's, it's like a lot of things, you know, our art works in a particular way. It's actually the same way that they, that we think of that common law thinks of law more as an art than, than sort of a objective thing. But Jay-Z tells this story about, you know, he's, he's young and he's the headliner at this, uh, at, at a, uh, show somewhere and it was outside it was a huge outside outside, yeah big big outside event and dmx goes on right before him and he tells the story of dmx being backstage dmx is older he's more experienced he's a lot more intense than jay-z jay-z's intense but dmx is dmx yeah right and he says he's back there and he's got his microphone and he starts growling into the microphone but behind the stage right so all the guys are it's like hey dmx you're up and everybody's like all right hey man go go kill it and he pulls his microphone up to his mouth and goes and the crowd knows now it's dmx they know so they so they erupt all the men erupt and he goes out there and he's just you know killing it on stage and about halfway through he takes his shirt off and then all the women erupt right (laughs) and so and uh and then he gets to the end and he says all right everybody let's pray and he leads this entire crowd in prayer. Everybody's crying. <laughs> crying and bawling, right? Because DMX, dude, that guy, he, he can preach. He can a, pray. He's like, a poet. He's intense. Yeah, he's a great poet. And uh, and then they look at Jay-Z and they're like, all right, Jay-Z, you're next. And Jay-Z's young. And he's like, ah. <laughs> and if you watch the whole clip, I've seen the the, the whole that whole episode. It's on uh, LeBron's Barbershop. He, he, the... the uh, He's like, and I realized I didn't know how to do a stage show. Uh-huh. Right? Having to go on after DMX, I thought I knew before that, but then, but this guy, he could, he he knew how to how to serve his audience. He knew what his that his his job was to move his audience. Mm. That was the that was the service that he was providing to move them, and he, and he knew he was move he knew which way he was moving them because he was a Christian, and this that's not what Jay Z talks about. Jay Z just talks about I didn't know what I what my job was until I saw DMX do it. And that's how I learned my job is to serve this audience. And I, and my, so my, and so he says, and I realized my stage shows are terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Right. Until I saw it done by an old master and uh, that understanding of art and that the understanding of poetry and the, uh, that it, it, the, the way it develops is you look at how the previous generation did it. You learn everything you can from them. And then, but you learn not just the content, but the way it's done from them. And then you imitate them and try and move the art forward. Oh, man. Basically, the way common law works. Jason, 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 this is so, what you just said is so interesting because deconstructionism, which is what we're going through right now, right? Yeah. Everything's being deconstructed, is to absolutely try and sever us from our forefathers it is right you know it is the it's trying to kill covenant we've talked about this before in Mm -hmm. in um 
in other shows where I'm realizing that everything that the world or secularism or Gnosticism or whatever we're talking about, um, the lack of understanding true metaphysics is trying to separate you in one way or another from the history line that you're connected to. Like that's right. it's, it's cause if it can do that, because ultimately what it's trying to get at is I think Francis Schaefer t- called it, um, he had two tiers. He had the, the we talked about this last yeah. show. There is this whole other that you are not a part of that is creator, right? He sent outside of creation yeah. uh, and above it. And then there's this other, which is everything that's inside of creation. And history attaches you to <laughs> the realities of creator, of cre- uh, cre- creator and creature, right? And the, right. the, 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 the the line between the two and how the two function, right? Because you're telling the story of Genesis all over again. Um, right. You were made, you it, were created, right? And what modernity, when it came along, or the Enlightenment and Enlightenment modernity, it came along and tries to separate or put in a a, a sort of fundamental difference between what's a above the line and below the line, but it also moves the line down and adds some creaturely things to that. What they, what's called the noumenal realm. Mm. So the noumenal realm for Christians, the noumenal realm is God is wholly different than us in his essence. Right. But then in his, but then he created a world that is, uh, analogically related, right? So in in it's in his essence, he is a creator and independent in his being, and we are created uh, and dependent in our being. And what's interesting is that is the exact distinction. That is the the that's where Blackstone goes when he starts talking about the law. Um, Blackstone wrote. Um, Commentaries on English law, I think is what it's called. It sort of set the standard for all of the definitions that we still use in American law, but he was doing it in England. He goes that when he goes to the justification of the common law system, he goes to the creator creature divide, Mm. right? And he says, we are dependent. Therefore we live according to laws that, um, and the, the first place that law comes from is, what he calls uh, nature, right? But he, but we post enlightenment use the word nature to mean like we look out at nature, right? Nature is out there and it's like the trees and the everything, right? Um, and natural, when we talk about the laws of nature, we talk about things we observe that we can expect to happen again. Well, the older way that natural law was used, what it meant was God, our our nature as created beings is wholly dependent for our existence upon God. Therefore, he gets to define who we are, are, what our nature is, and then natural law is how that nature ought to be used in the world. So here's, right. I, I can't remember, um, for read, I, I got this from David Fowler, who's going to be joining us next week, talk about, uh, common law. Um, 
and he's in in this. I don't even know where he's gotten this from, but I'll I'll ask him when we have him on. He says <laughs> Blackstone stated his Christian thesis with unmistakable clarity, and he goes in to say this is what Blackstone said: Man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the law of his creator, for he is entirely a dependent being. A state of dependence by inevitably oblique the inferior to take the will of him on whom he depends as the rule of his conduct. And consequently, as a man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking right. about. Right. Exactly. That's, yeah. So that's that 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 even in. Um, in the the later definitions of uh, w- when basically when they start getting into arguments about the law and its nature, Blackstone comes to to the defense of common law, saying this is a fundamentally Christian. Yes, it's birth birthed out of a Christian understanding. It's a fundamentally Christian way of approaching civic law. So common law is. I want to get to I want to get to common law in in just a second. So man, there's so much about this I want to talk about because I'm understanding. So I came into this theonomically. So I came in reading the Old Testament uh, in charismatic circles. The Old Testament is especially black churches. We identify a lot with the children of Israel because of our historical backdrop. So we have so much. We're rooted so much in Old Testament theology. Um, Of course, we have a picture of Christ too, but. Our identity really, as far as the people in the story, we see ourselves a lot like the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, having to go through battles and fight and win, and God been our side, and we shouldn't have won any of them because we're such a small group of people. Like, we really right, identify. So right. we, we are steeped a, a lot in Old Testament theology, so we stay there a lot. So Deuteronomy is one of the books that we really embrace, and we, we preach a lot of law in our churches, which is, I'm totally fine with that in the right context. But because of that, theonomy was really easy for me to grasp. It wasn't hard for me to grasp theonomic law because God's a lawgiver. Everything comes from him. What I didn't, um, and so when I got the, what I didn't understand about law, and this is what you were talking about earlier, was the poetry in it. So we had a context of law that was um, almost of do this, don't do that kind of situation. But the way that Blackstone and um, a lot of the other early writers, I think you had Cook, and you had, I was trying to think of Henry Bacton. That's who I'm thinking of. So you got Henry okay. Bacton, and he kind of starts the way, um, I think it was 1254, all the way up to Cook. And then Blackstone moves in after that and absorbs all of his writings and starts writing um, more, in, well, he has better vision, into common law, a treatise on it. But the the, the way that these guys are understanding uh, natural law wasn't just the idea of thou shall not. It was the idea of this is how life works. Right. Yeah. That was fascinating to me. Right. It's a completely different approach that the law is a description of what a true and full life is. Yeah. And because it's a, so when Jesus comes and he is the word incarnate, right? What you learn is that all of the law was a description of Jesus mm. and it was a description of the way God lives. And so the law is an invitation to live the way God <sighs> lives, live 
a life like God's, which is a true, full, complete life. Now, we do it as creatures. He does does it as a creator. Right? And so the distinction ends up being made between the communicable and incommunicable attributes theologically. In a common law setting, though, what you're trying to discover is what it is to what what destroys our ability to live as a human life right what what is dehumanizing and then mm. put and, and as we learn that wisdom the law puts up fences at those dehumanizing places right that's a christian understanding of the law as as boundaries right the law is the boundaries on life right beyond this is death this on this side is life so the and then there's um the restitutionary law there's 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 civil law um it, that is when you can't just work things out with your neighbors and mm-hmm. you need the law to step in right there's a there's a, a certain kind of law and then there is judicial law which just which is when you've committed a crime right so there's so there's the law is ends up being carefully divided but all of it is about how how does life for individuals and life for communities um, work and what are the edges that become dehumanizing right death embrace edges and how do we put up those those boundaries do you think that part of our um you know, I always say that a person who works with God's world and materials is able to understand boundaries better than people who don't. So people who are always working on softwares that there's no boundaries, they can kind of go beyond what they want to. They think that they can. Right. Yeah. Um, but a person who works with wood understands where things break at. A person who right. works with metal understands where things bend at and how far they can bend. So, you know, when we're talking about law and the beauty of law, which you were talking about earlier. You know, Blackstone is talking about when he's working through common law and natural law, he's working through the idea of how flowers, there's a law to how they develop, how they become erect and how they get beauty. And so long as they follow that law and that law works out in them, the world is beautiful because of it. Right. Right. And so that that law that that when law is functioning properly, it's a it's you know it it's the equivalent of like you know clearing the clearing the brush overhead mm-hmm. so that sunlight can get to the flower because right. the flower needs sunlight right? right so when the when it's not getting sunlight it can't live um and so you have to remove the things that are getting in the way of the sunlight yeah so they didn't well they didn't think law was any Law was prevalent inside of nature itself. Like it is God's law is everywhere in everything. And the beauty that we see is because of that law, right? That they didn't right. have a separate understanding. Oh, this is civil law. This was all connected to again, how the world is functioning, operating around us so that it was observable because in one sense or another, God has actually placed his law also in man's heart. So they know that this is right. And they know that yeah. this is wrong, right? That's what Paul talks about. Yeah, uh, Calvin makes the distinction between um, natural law and conscience, and he says natural law is um, is the is how natures uh, flourish, how something living according to its nature flourishes, and conscience is 
the writing of that natural law on the heart of mankind, mm. right? So that there is that God has written on our conscience the um, the what causes us to flourish and what doesn't. Now we go against our conscience, but that conscience is is binding in the sense that it is mm. um, from the hand of God, right? It, mm. So so it is the the god's law written on our heart is binding in that sense that it's we can see natural law you know but at work but then I'll, just think i know i don't want to jump too far ahead but every when as soon as i start thinking about this as soon as i start reading more blackstone i realize that we are absolutely at a very interesting place right now because when i argue or i talk to someone in christianity the one who people who are in my circles they argue for a form of autonomy that is completely opposed to God's world. You know, you have to, by definition, I'm starting to believe this, by definition, you have to be some form of the theonomic. You have to be. You can't not be that way if you understand justice, if you understand there's a law to marriage, a law of love, right? It's still a law, right? You you can't escape that. And there's a way to do it. And there was a way not to do it. And then there's also sanctions from, because that's what covenant is. That's it's built into the system. Right. Well, I think though, what has happened is that the word theonomy has been separated from the covenant mm. in a lot of people's understanding. Well, if they're even and covenantal, so, first of all, the, <laughs> right. Well, so, well, a lot, but, but you've got non, covenantal theonomists i don't like those um, guys <laughs> i love everyone i because, love them i just said i don't like yeah. them <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you have it but it but but that is because i think the majority of american christians are not functioning in a covenantal context or that I mean, they are because the world is a covenantal place but they don't it's invisible to them um they actually are thinking more like enlightenment. So the, what happens in the change in the enlightenment is that you start getting this idea of an ideal law code mm. um, that needs to be imposed in the moment. Right. So you get, you get, so people start working on ideal law codes and then those ideal law codes are brought about and brought forward and then imposed by coercive force. Right. Um, Mm. And mm. many theonomists talk about the law in that same sort of way. They just say, but the it's God's law that's the ideal that we impose by coercive force, right? So that we can just walk in and place the civil laws of Israel onto, you know, say the state of South Dakota and boom, by coercive, by coercive force, apply it, right? Now they... If you said, was this what you want to do? They might say, well, no, not ideally, but, you know. I don't know they, any they, theonomists they, that think like that, Jason. Right, right. But that's how they talk, right? Who? That's, they, I mean, the lead theonomists don't. Like the people who are right. No, no, they're not. I'm talking about the, the outside of a covenantal context. Oh, okay. Right? I was so, trying to figure uh, so, yeah. you, so would you say somebody who is like, uh, here, here's, let's think of a particular group. You have kind of the. Jesus movement people who are the kind of charismatics who are one to have the seven dom they think about dominion. seven dominions. That's yeah, a yeah. really good example. Yeah. Right? So it's a non-covenantal ah. theonomy, right? So what do we do? Well, we need to take the seven mountains back, right? And then 
and then we can apply God's law, you know, on right. So they're thinking, they're thinking manipulatively, coercively in the same sort of way, right? Um, mm. That it's an that's an enlightenment understanding, but whereas the uh, the if you're thinking in a creator creature covenantal context, right? God is holy other in essence in being um and that but then he is fully present he's fully imminent fully present in creation and the spirit is the holy spirit is guiding history right right and the covenant is the terms by which god interacts mm. with the world right so the 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 there are secret things involved but they belong to god the covenant belongs to us and to our children and we live according to god's covenant wherein he's promised when where how mm-hmm. he he has bound himself to be um in his in relationship and in presence and all of those things so I need to restore the word theonomy. I just have to because you're right. I don't think people think about it that way, but I don't know. So when I think about theonomy, I'm thinking about what it says in the name, theonomy, God's law. Right. right? That's what I'm thinking about. God's God's objective standard, sovereignty of God is what I'm thinking about. But how, you know, how language works is you've got the literal meaning and then you've got all of the things that it suggests. Sure. You know, because it, uh, that, and that's, that is, so, so, um, if, if you think of, theonomy the same way say alfred did um or common law then, does <laughs> yeah so he so king alfred who's be, the beginning the establishment of common law he took so he there were a number of different english kingdoms before him but the vikings came in the vikings were just pirates and they came in and they conquered and killed a number of uh, a number of people a number of kings and so they were they were left with just a single king along the southern coast of Ireland that still had royal blood and it was Alfred. And he was, I th- believe he was the seventh son and his six older sons and his father were all killed or died of disease caused by, uh, you know, w- one of the battlefield diseases. So he ends up the king of three kingdoms. Three kingdoms are joined together under him and uh, under his grandson, all of the seven kingdoms of England end up joined together um and he says okay so the the law of the land has been completely broken down by um invasions and so he he writes what are what are called the um uh it's it's called the 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 uh doom book um and doom is the anglo-saxon for law so it's his law code right? and what he does is he takes the the law of the three kingdoms that he's now the kingdom of Mercia. Oh, there's three there's three kingdoms. He takes their law codes and he combines them together. Um, he says because they are currently you know they they have jurisdiction. Then he takes some of the Roman uh, law code because the Romans had ruled England and he saw himself in many ways as uh, taking over the Roman. The, the Roman rule of England because they had combined England and now he finds himself in a situation where many tribes are combined, many kingdoms are combined under him. And so he says it's there's sort of an imperialism. So he takes the imperial law of Rome, which once had jurisdiction in England, the, the three kingdoms, the law of the three kingdoms 
that and then the book of Deuteronomy because he says Jesus is Lord of all. He's the King of Kings. And so his law also has jurisdiction on the soil of England. And he combines them together and writes, uh, writes together the law code um, that becomes the beginning of the common law system. But, but part of that is because he took the system of law of Deuteronomy mm. um, and says, this is how our law is going to function. And that was the revolutionary part was taking the system of law and how that works is Deuteronomy. And we mentioned this in the last one, Deuteronomy is the, um, is Moses having judged according to the 10 commandments for 40 years in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go in. And he says, let me lay out the wisdom that I have learned judging hard cases, according to the 10 commandments, right? Three sections of Deuteronomy. The middle section is, broken down into 10, 10 different um, sections that are each according to the Ten Commandments. Here's the wisdom I have gained for 40 years of making hard judgments because he only made the very hardest judgments, right? Yeah. There were all sorts of judges making judgments that never made it to him because they were simple. Moses spent his day with the very hardest cases. And so he lays out how do you do, how do, how do the Ten Commandments form my thinking on some of the very hardest cases. And he says that case law is now um, authoritative as case law. And you're supposed to take it and learn it. And the judges are supposed to internalize it. And so now they can make hard judgments, but then record their hard judgments, pass them around to the other judges so that they're also all learning the wisdom and the law code grows and is refined. And so Alfred takes what is legal, the laws of the English kingdoms, the law of Rome, and the the law of Deuteronomy, that they are legally binding, they have jurisdiction on English soil, pulls them together and says, now let's move forward with this understanding of how the art of law mm. develops. Trusting that the Holy Spirit is guiding, guiding history forward, right? That the Holy Spirit's presence guides history forward and our law code can grow in wisdom, grow and, and become closer and closer to, um, on the, the way that life flourishes right okay pause become, right there pause right there because yeah. you said something that i don't want to miss and this is something i need to lock in myself trusting that the holy spirit is working through history to, to do what right because that's super important because if you have an eschatology that doesn't believe where the end is going to go then it's hard for you to believe that holy spirit is working in history that way right right so you have yeah. to <laughs> yeah go ahead and and this and this is where um you know they they didn't have the the eschatological debates yet that we've had since. Mm. Um, so they didn't, but they didn't have dispensationalism, right? It hadn't been invented yet. Uh, so, um, but so there was an understanding that God was maturing people, mm. right? He was maturing his people and he was conquering the whole earth. Now, how the, 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 the mathematics of how that all works and all of that, you know, they were very, they had incredibly brave 
missionaries and they loved to tell, especially on English soil, they loved those missionary stories. Um, the, they, so they would tell the story. There's, you know, St. Andrew, his, the St. Andrew was, he ends up crucified on a, on a, a, a cross that's sideways, right? So he's kind of hung up on the cross sideways that ends up in the Scottish national flag, right? Cause the, the, they loved those missionary stories. So St. Andrew's cross is right at the center of the Scottish national flag. Um, and, and, uh, so the, the missionary mindset that they had was, well, we send out missionaries, people get converted like we did, mm. right? St. Augustine, um, the missionary, uh, uh, he, he shows up in England. He's sent by Gregory the Great. He shows up in England, not even really speaking English. He stops and gets an English translator, um, in France and, and, uh, he, they, they show up and, convert in mass over the course of a couple of years of real intense kind of revival missionary um, success. And then long-term uh, success, they overtake the Anglo-Saxons with the gospel. Um, and so by the time you get to the 900s, they're still telling the story. Um, but great. The, the first thing that, um, that, uh, Alfred does when he, so he begins trying to establish a new, a new learning center because England was known as the place where all of the great schools were and all of the great learning was all the great libraries were, well, the Vikings just, just decimated the libraries of England, Mm. burned them down, stole them because they would, they took, they, they were worth a lot of money. And, uh, and, um, a lot of the great teachers had been taken to Europe because they were exporting teachers. Well, when out, Al- so Alfred comes along and learning has, is kind of at a, a new low. And he says, we need to reestablish English learning. The first book he translates back into English is the, the pastoral, um, the, the pastorals of Gregory, the great, right? The, how to be a good pastor. And he says this, I want every, member of every royal house to read this. So he translates it into English and he says, because we are also the servants of God as, as the rulers of the people, right? So the, so he wants us them to think like pastors, right? You represent Jesus to the people. You, you are, uh, you have to have self-control. You have to be completely resistant to bribery. You are all of that. Yes. Right? Elder he, elders. Yeah, that's, yeah. Elder qualifications, yeah. right? He is what he's thinking of for all the, all the barons, every, everybody that rules in England. Um, and then he begins working on the law code saying, but we also need this wisdom. And so mm. they have, he, everybody has to learn to, uh, read both Latin and Anglo-Saxon to be a part of the royal court, right? He's, he said, mm. we got we have to, we have to be learned because the law comes to us as something that is studied, meditated on, and then acted upon. And then we, and we will grow in wisdom as a people over generations until our law code reflects uh, God's, God's creation of us and our nature um, more and more and more, and we mature uh, into a a greater people over generations. You know what's funny about that? I mean, it's not funny, but it, that's actually what was expected of a king of Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. The king of Israel had to write the law, know the law, uh, and study in the law, 
um, so that he could actually lead people well. Right. Like he could, right. he had to know what was required because in one sense, um, you know, a prophet, a uh, priest and a king uh, all have in one way or another, they are go betweens between God and man. Right. And so they have to represent the people to God and God to the people one way or another. Right. Either in the civil area, even in the liturgical area, um, you know, it, so they had to know what was required of man by God for them to be better humans and to judge humans. And they had to know what um, what what their responsibilities and duties were to God for these people. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> and so apart from yeah. I think um, was it. um it might have been Henry Bacton that said that every king, no king should submit to people. Um, the king should not submit to people, but to God, because God is the one who created the authority for kings. Right. So and he had yeah. to submit to God's law because God's law is the thing that keeps him in check as he represents the people. Right. Because otherwise you got people who have put him there. Right. Uh, um, and. If his authority ultimately, this is enlightenment stuff. If his authority ultimately comes from the people, then the people can change how that authority should operate. But if his authority as a ruler comes from God, then he has to submit to what God's standard is over against, even if the people would, would right. push against it, right? Which is a very important distinction as it comes to law. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. No, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly the the distinction because, and this is where. You know, you're right. You've got to be a theonomist. It's because it's never a question of if there's a God, it's just which God. Uh-huh. Right. And in democracy, demos is the God. Right? The people are the God. And so you're submitting to them. And um, they're the ones that create the power. And then they're the then they're the ones who control the power. In a Christian understanding, God is the one who sets up the authorities in the world. And their job is to represent God to the people and then represent the people to God, right? They're a representative um, situation. So they can represent the people to God and go and repent of sins, right? right. David does that, right? But then David's sin also mm-hmm. affects the people, right? So that there's a, a deep connection. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the same and it's an analogy. It's analogously the same relationship that a husband and a wife have. Mm. Right. So that's why when David wants to write, or when Solomon says, now I'm going to write my great thesis, my, my great thesis on being a King, he writes the song of Solomon, right? It's wisdom literature for Kings. How do you treat a woman? That's how you treat your people. That is so he's Adam failed in the garden as a king because he didn't protect his wife. Right. He failed in a gar in the garden as a king because he didn't um he, he didn't kill the dragon, right? That mm-hmm. he was failing as a husband and as a king. And as a priest, yeah, and a prophet. As a priest, yeah. right? So so he was he was failing in all of the all of the ways because he held all three offices at once. So yeah. people are always like, "Well, what was created first? Well, they were all created at the same time. Adam is the king. He's the he, so he's the civil ruler. He's the priest, and he's the husband all at once. The um, there is not not one of them is not earlier than all mm-hmm, the others. Mm-hmm. In my well informed opinion, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that one. So when so when we talk about but that. Go ahead. You, that that's one of the that's one of the areas that um, a lot of 
modern theonomists get into trouble because I, the, you, there's a tendency among theonomists to put the family as the foundation of all the other magistrates. No, you know, uh, I, I think I hold to the only thing I hold to is, and, and this is me agreeing with you and then making the distinction between the family being the only one that populates the others. So, yeah, 100%. So, right, the, the authority so the family, structures are all together at the same time. The author- yeah, but the, and I, I think it, what, the reason that, that a lot of modern conservatives get traction there is actually they, they, they're not think they're, they're saying the family is primary fam. Um, and that that's not true, but the family is the place where we have jurisdiction. And so it is primary for husbands, mm-hmm. right? A husband. Right, that, right. He, so it's his primary jurisdiction. So that's the place where he can change things. And if they, if they understood, if they, if that's what they mean by primary, then yeah, 100% right. I'm with them. Well, I'm trying to figure right. out like, what, what do you mean by primary? Because when I think about it, I don't see, you know, when Adam is made, um, the crown and glory of creation, all those things are happening simultaneously. He's not operating outside of one of those, you know, first and then the other, right? So the right. fall, it's like he's a prophet, right? <laughs> he, he he didn't do a good job there, right? Yeah, he's a failed failed prophet, failed king, failed priest, right? And all three of those failed husband, failed, right? All those. I I think I want to make a distinction though between so you got the family and I, and I don't know. This is me from reading corp guys on this so i would say rush dooney um mm-hmm. i don't read a lot of greg bonson on theonomy i i think he fought more of the battles and setting out a principal case of theology for it from so you got commentaries from gary north and rush dooney that are really laying out and gary demar who are laying out way more of a foundation for uh theonomy where i think bonson is arguing the principles of it uh, more mm-hmm. than anybody else and he does some great exegesis i'm not saying anything bad about bonson yeah. because he's a beast in it but i think that the establishing self-government uh, in one way above, not above all, but in the fact that if you don't have self-government, none of the other ones operate, <laughs> right? Yeah, 100%. So, so there's like broken and, links that, that ruin all the other spheres at the end of the day. And I, um, and I know they all believe as well that the, the establishment of self-government comes by believing the gospel. Right. right? Exactly. Right? That, yeah. that Jesus Jesus and the spirit, you know, the father by Jesus through the spirit interacts with us personally as individuals Mm -hmm. that the judgment Mm -hmm. at the end of time is personally as individuals and that the establishment of self-government is in the internal rebirth, you know, uh, of people by the gospel, right? Amen. Yeah, they yeah. all they all believe that. I do believe that Rush Dooney had a tendency to um to put the family as primary and um he, and a lot of the patriarchalist movement tends to put the family's primary and I think that is an error of categories. I wasn't so um, mad at Rush Dooney for necessarily that as much as I was for him not acknowledging the highest um the the extreme importance of the church right like so <laughs> there was his i think his focus on um the family was essential because of what was happening at the time but he didn't put the buttress so those fears if you draw one smaller than the other you get into trouble 
And so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you could, you could draw one bigger, one smaller. It's like, eh, actually these fears are, um, you know, just like, uh, your genes, they all flow and they all need each other in order for your whole body to be able to operate. Like you were saying other, earlier, it's not like yeah. one came before the other. It's like, which one came first, lungs or noses? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, I think though that the spheres, we tend to, we tend, the, the spheres are jurisdictions, right? That's, that's the, that's the question of sphere is, and they're actually layered on top of one another. Yeah. Um, and so, coming at the the spheres you know the the mental picture we get in our mind is often like you know three circles yeah, you know, yeah that are yeah. each have their spheres but it's really more like three circles laid right on top of That's one right. another each of them are a jurisdiction yeah. that god established um they're go- oh, i like it, i like to even use the word governments Right, like yeah, governments. That's a yeah. great way to that's a great way to put it. Right, they're governments, but they are layered right on top of one another. Yeah, that's and right. And they each have their they they each have their you know the they they each bump up against the edges in our lives because they're not all authoritative over all of us. That's right. O- no, that's over right. everything about us. Yeah. 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 And, and I think part of the reason that people lay them not necessarily on top of each other, although I think most people would agree is because of where they interact, depending on what's going on. Right. So it's like, well, when does this fear bump into this other sphere? Well, at this point, right. <laughs> right. And when did they, right. so, but, but here's what I want to ask you real quick. Just, I want to, I want to try and wrap cause I want to talk about law, which I think we've done yeah. a little bit. And then I want to talk about common a little, a little more because here's some, so here's something that I want to talk about with common law real quick. So the common part of law is really, I don't, Jason, you have to help me with this because I don't know how you can't, you can't be, so it's two things. I think you have to, by default, be theonomic in the way that we're talking about it. And then the other thing is you have to be post-millennial. And here's why. So so law is theonomic. And then the other side is post-millennial because common law is being worked out in history to a particular maturity to expand the gospel in the world. Right. I I think what you would you you would what you would say is you can't be Gnostic. Right. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, well, well so see, when, that's worse than what how, I said though. Because I was being kind. You're saying if you're not post millennial, you're Gnostic. I just want to say that's what no, you just that's saying. What you, no, no, no. There are there are other there are other non-Gnostic. I'm I'm post-millennial, right down <laughs> I, to my little pinky toes, right? Yeah. I love post-millennialism, but there are other non-Gnostic eschatologies. I don't know. As well, right? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so, <laughs> you read, if you, if you read Spurgeon on eschatology, he's pre-millennial. Yeah, but he's and a Baptist at all. He's Baptist, so he's Gnostic by default. <laughs> say I'm say I'm wrong. Oh. Say I'm wrong. He's Gnostic in practice, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Not by default. Well, okay. But, all right. All right. Not by default. Uh, in practice. Okay. Yeah, but his, but yeah, his, I mean, his sacramental <laughs> theology, his sacramental practice is. <laughs> man, you're going to get me in trouble. I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I've been getting you in trouble other times. No, I, but I, 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 I think I agree that with you, though. Ultimately, that, I agree the, with you. That the, that the, that the problem is that there's a Gnostic metaphysic uh, assumed mm. underneath that that gets in the way of being able to 
have, I think, both the patience, but also to work within the work within the systems, the authorities that God has set up. Right. We become revolutionaries mm. because we think there isn't hope for the systems that God established. Right? We don't believe that 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 courts can be converted. Right. We because only individuals can be converted in Gnosticism because it has to do with ideas. And so then everything else has to be done by coercion. And that is that's the Gnostic assumption uh, that is that underlies modernism, underlies communism, underlies uh, uh, underlies socialism, fascism, underlies all of the you know all you, of the revolutions. Um, is know, that go ahead? Is that individuals can be the individuals can get the right ideas in their head and they can be dealt with in a converting manner everything else has to be coercion this is Whereas this is this is christianity how... is a converting religion it converts everything no, thank you that, that, that that's that's what i was waiting for you to say is that it converts everything because i have friends who i love dearly who will say things like jesus didn't come to change the culture he came to right. change men right um and and for me that is a fallacy on his face because the assumption there is that man and culture are somehow you know, this separate thing. Um, yeah. You know, and they will want to say, well, you know, eventually culture will eventually change because man are changed. Well, then I, I, why not just say, because here's the thing. When, when some people start talking about Jesus came to same people somehow from the world, I want to, I want to flip out because the world is his too. <laughs> yeah. And I, but I, I think, so here's where I would identify the error though is, when you say he came to save man, not culture, culture, I think is a, an enlightenment category. Mm, we talked like, about that a corp- little bit. Yeah. Corporate man is, did he come to save corporate man? Right. Did he come to say, cause we're not made in the image of an individualistic God, right? We're made in the image of a God who is one and three, a, right? Does, does, is man restored such that him, man and his corporate identities are saved? Or do we have to flee our corporate identities and, you know, is there no hope for our corporate, for corporate man? Now the, the category of corporate man is a covenantal category that has been almost lost, right? I mean, nationalism was a fake nationalism was an attempt to make a fake version of corporate man, right? To take one kind of uh, corporate relationship and, and make it primary above all others. Okay. You got to talk about that. Cause you're the one who got me thinking about this is, which is why I went to go back and study world war one all over again, which is um, uh, uh, Paul Johnson's book. Yeah. The yeah. Mo- a modern modernity B- birth, birth of the modern or no, no, yeah, no, that was, uh, or no, uh, birth of the modern is the one in the 1800s, and then modernity. Yes, yeah, it is uh, the one in the early 1900s. Yeah, uh, so, Paul Johnson's. Yeah, but that book, because what I what he talked about, and you talked about, and I kind of put these two things together, which was, um, and I think when we had Thomas Price on here. He talked about it too. He really talked about Thomas Price is the one who kind of put the, the all of it together for the beginning of me, where he talks about um, this is dealing with common law man. And the theology was growing and maturing in such a way that there was a language finally to talk about these things yep. that we had never had before in in history with the world, right? The whole common man. And this is culminating up to a point 
where what did he, where was the marker on that? What was it the at post enlightenment? Was it that what the marker was? That that or the, con- in terms of the linguistic development? Yeah, the ling- Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because- so that 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 you begin getting a turn away from it right in the generation before Kant. Okay, uh, a turn into a new. So Descartes really turns us, tries to develop a new language or or move you know move move the language in a secular direction so what ends up happening is now you have this kind of um christian culture permeating the world um and then you see this kind of like this dip in there because of this new metaphysic that's being introduced and then come world war come before world war one turn of the century now you have uh, einstein who's helping with this you have freud who's helping with this um ter- come the turn of the century being that that form of communication started slipping and the reality started slipping, they had to replace that. Nations had to replace that bond, that grip that was keeping us together to communicate, that right. was forming relationships with people. Um, they had to replace that with something. And so what they end up replacing that with was nationalism. Yeah. What was it that keeps people together to give their all to the nation? Well, National national pride, right? National pride, yep. <laughs> and so yep. when you get that, then you get a new religion. So you have one religion that's slipping out, right? And because of this new metaphysic, and this new metaphysics brings in a whole new form of religion for nations to bond people together. And almost because that new metaphysics make them forget about the humanity of others and bind together for a whole new purpose, which is – um, that nation becoming uh, some form of God, right? That's that's what Hitler right. embodied ultimately with what he did in the second half, of the second beginning of the, the turn of the century, right? Uh, in the World War Two. So you're right. You don't. Whenever you get to this place where Christianity isn't the the founding metaphysics, something else has to rise in place to bring yeah. in this. And and we don't know how steeped in nationalism that we are. Um, even in America right now, to the point that that is what's driving the. Um, you, you talked about earlier about the the power pushing down the imposing of law versus the gospel, which changes in the whole system because of of um, of transformed hearts. Right? Um, you get this national identity, and then this top down. Imp- imposement of it and then you get the people who rise up against it what they want to do is impose a different idea of (laughs) what nationalism should look like but they're still both fighting over nationalism right so you have this is like the the 1619 project 1618 project Uh, yeah 1619 project 1619 the reason that they are effective is because we still have nationalist assumptions they come in and they say hey let me tell you about something terrible that your nation did that's you, man. That's you. That's because we're nationalists, right? If our identity is wrapped up in, uh, in our, the fact that we're an American, mm. then they're threatening our identity and they're saying, you're the bad guy then. Right. Um, now whether that, whether they're historical, um, whether they're historically accurate or not, if that's not the, I don't even think that's the important question. If, Christians are threatened when they discover that America did something wrong 
in their fundamental identity, then they need to repent and say, whew, that's, that was a close one. I'm glad I learned that. I'm glad God revealed to me that I have that temptation Mm. towards um, a national pride, right? Taking pride, taking identity, you know, that's what pride is, right? You take an identity in something that defines who you are, right? And that's where your pride is. That's why we're told to boast in no one but Christ Jesus, right? That's where our pride resides is in Christ Jesus, right? That's where our, um, that that's the only thing that we can boast in. And it's not us. It's outside of us. It's what God has done. Right. And so, um, when God, I think God is revealing to the church, a lot of nationalistic pride. Mm. Now the, what is, what people will hear when I say that, because I've, I've been trying to figure out how do you like, what, cause there's like a Christian nationalist movement now, right? Whether people are trying to push for Christian nationalism and what people are hearing is I should ha- be a good patriot. And that patriotism is, is a virtue, right? That you're, <laughs> that you are one, but that, but patriotism and Christian nationalism are not, or that nationalism is sneaking something in that Christians need to say no to, right? Just, just like if, if I said, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a, Christian, you know, Christian, I don't even, I don't know if there's a, what's a, what's a word for taking pride in your own race, right? Christian <laughs> racist, but yeah, that's, no, that's, not, that's not, doesn't, you know, where it's like um, that we're not supposed to take pride in our race, right? Or mm. pride in our nationality, right? We can black power, embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. We can be, embrace it. We can be grateful for it. Um, Black and excellence, we, you know, you see black, that same thing, but, yeah, yeah, right. And but but any but human excellence, no matter what race, should inspire everyone of every race, right? You, right, you right. Look at you look at. Um, I mean, I I was raised on the stories of oh the uh, the gentleman that used the peanut to invent so many things. Um, um, Carver, um, Carver, uh, George Washington Carver, Carver right? Yeah. I was raised on that story. Um, I, I remember my parents, I, uh, telling me that story, what, you know, to encourage me to work harder in school. Like, look, George Washington Carver, look how many ways he figured out how to use the peanut, right? You, that's what we want for you. We want you, whether I, I don't remember when I learned that he was black or not, that didn't come up. I just learned that this is a man that worked hard mm. that blessed people that, that didn't give up, right? That, but that looked, that saw the possibilities of a peanut, right? Though yeah. I was raised on that story. Um, and, and that is black excellence mm-hmm. because it's human excellence. And there's, that's just, that, that should inspire everyone. Um, and, and it doesn't, it shouldn't bother us, you know. And I mean, I don't think the phrase black excellence should bother us either, right? It was like, yep. That is black excellence. But you know way what, though, to go. That, the reason but it's bothering as soon as you start taking pride in it, that I think is what's being snuck in. The same way Christian nationalism is sneaking something in. 
mm-hmm. is what do you take pride That's in? That's what I was going to say. Anything but Jesus. So well, and I think part of what it's being used. I hey, I'm going to tell you. I appreciate the idea of black excellence. Okay, first of all, right? Because yeah. because I understand what they're trying to say and what they think they're saying. But the problem that I have with it is that it's used as a marker to excommunicate other people out. It's not used to bring other people yes. in. If it was right. used more to do that, then I'd be like, oh. That's dope, right? Like, absolutely. And I think there's ways to do that. I think at some point it was meant to say, hey, we are trying to be part of the narrative. I, I, we have to have a conversation on that because that's a whole nother thing. Here's oh, totally. Well, like you pointed out to me. So when I, I, I'm in, I, I, the Toby Nguyenwe, the oh, yeah, rapper yeah, out of, yeah. out of uh, North Texas. Just right. I love his beats, right? Creates incredible beats. I like the way he raps and his wife's a good rapper. I love that it's a husband wife duo rapping and he's about his family. Super pro black, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I, and the, but, and, and you said, well, hey, I, I, was it black nationalism? You're like, he's sneaking in some black nationalism. I was, you know, unfamiliar with it. Yeah. So then I went and looked it up like, oh, yeah, he is sneaking in a little (laughs) bit of that. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not it's not something I'd run into before. Um and it it took basically one Wikipedia search to right. to learn what it was. Like, oh yeah, he is sneaking that in. But I but it's it's not I mean it's not my temptation. Black nationalism's not my temptation. <laughs> well, you know, it might not be your temptation, but it might be forced but, upon you. <laughs> right, it might be. And but now and now I'll be aware of it. And at the same time, um it's not it's not something he's pushing front and center. I right. think it's something that's maybe an assumption in the background, um, which so there there isn't. But it's it's like a lot of things, right? What are we threatened by? It shouldn't mm. be. There should be very few things that we're threatened by, right? We can look at something and say like, okay, where do I parse out these things, right? So we can say, what about this is good? What about this is bad? That's that's actually where we learn the wisdom. When we're threatened, we become, we we retreat into tribalism. We retreat, and I mean, I think it's just as dangerous to flee the world as it is to be of the world. Right. right? We're told to be in the world and of the world, and that's where safety is. Right. Safety is being in the world and of the world because our safety is covenantal safety always. So it's safe. Safety is in obedience. That's Jesus. So when we retreat from the world. Yeah, exactly. When we retreat from the world, I think it's just as dangerous as, you know, um, being of the world. And and this, and so I don't want to lose sight in this because I'm just tracking how we got here. Ultimately it was the understanding of history and common law being, you know, in order for you to really, again, I don't want to, Maybe I'm being too strict in how I'm marking this out, but you have to believe that God is working out history in a particular way in time and in space and in this current world that we're in to bring it to a particular end on this world that doesn't push for some sort of um, exit strategy from it. It is actually being worked out in time and space. And when you look at common law, common law is being able to see how God is doing that in time and space with, with his word, right? So you, you got uh, Alfred the Great using Deuteronomy, right? Right. And saying, okay, and God is giving him wisdom. This is so important. Like with wisdom, wisdom is for you to see the situation 
and to know how God's word applies directly to that situation that you're in and to be able to bring about a fruitful outcome because of it. Right. And so Alfred, right. Alfred the Great is sent here with God's word with three different countries. Right. And and able to set this because of the scripture. It's like, oh, this is how we're going to do this. God's word is going to be the, at the post. It's going to be at the top. And we already have law so long as the grace of God is that's given to man in these situations meets the biblical requirement. We should keep those things and those laws because of, because of natural revelation, right? That's there that God has given. So he's not, he's not, not acknowledging that he's absolutely acknowledging that and say, how do we bring it in line with how God has designed man to function, function and flow. Right. And so history, and this is, we'll get to kind of American law at some point here, but history if you don't have a, a understanding perspective of history and what's go, what God is doing in history, then you miss out the maturity of man through time and space in history. Right, right, and I think that's what. So the the assumption, um, the assumption that the system of law that the Bible uses makes is that um, God is with His people, maturing them with a particular end in mind. Right. That, that, um, and whether it's, so there's, and there's different ways that you find this put throughout the theology, uh, the history of theology, but it's the restoration of the garden, the restoration of Adam, the return of man to the authority that he lost in the garden. Mm. Or, um, sometimes you get people talking about the, that God is maturing them to replace, replace the angels, right? To put them into the position that was once held by angels. Um, you know, they're going to judge angels, and and so he's moving them towards that end. Humanity as a as a race is being moved towards that particular end, and that understanding is that God works in history to do that. Right? That he works that in history he's working to do that. He's always worked in history, and it's and what you often get in the people discussing um, is that God worked in history covenantally in the past, but now he works vertically, right? He worked horizontally in the old Testament. He works vertically in the new Testament, right? Now he connects with people directly. The church is only made up of people that are regenerate. You know, you've got this, this assumption that now there's a pure, um, there's, there's a pure group of people that have, that have the, the, essence of all of it already and they're just waiting it out Mm. right um you know they're hopefully trying to grab some other brands from the fire right but but that um in the old testament god worked horizontally in history but then the holy spirit came and now god works just vertically vertically individually right yeah. yeah very individualistically um and the uh that's really good jason yeah. So, and that's where I think that's kind of the, some of those Gnostic assumptions are at work, but, but the, but common law says, no, we believe God is still at work in us and that we've got maturing to do. And so we're going to set up a law code that is not based on ideals that we brought down, but what is legal now and how can we mature our understanding of legal law, mature our, mature our, 
um, use of the law, you know, and and leave it better than we found it, right? Leave the law better than we found it. When, um, when 2020 happened, um, would you think that if we had a better understanding of what common law was, we would have been able to understand what Romans 13 is? So, you know, you, you got um, all of a well, sudden. Go ahead. I, I want to. I don't do this very often, but let me read you a a quote about. Uh, yeah, tell me what book you're reading it from so I can buy this book so, while you're talking. <laughs> this is this is the one that I showed you at the beginning. It's the shorter Cambridge medieval history. Um, so he's telling the story of the Magna Carta. All right. And um, and so you've got this really interesting series of circumstances where Richard the Lionheart is captured. Um, John King, King John takes over, or he's supposed to. John the usurper is, I think, now what he's called. <laughs> he, right? he he takes over while his brother is gone, and then um, and <clears throat> there's uh, it, but he was not. Um, Richard kept everybody in line by loyalty because he loved his people. He was great on the battlefield. He'd protected them. He'd done wonderful things for them. So the taxes were a little bit high. Um, higher than they had been, but people loved Richard and they knew that he had what was best for England in mind. So he only raised taxes for their own good and would lower them again when it was, when it neat, when that was done, right? Can they, we get one they, of belie- they believed that about Richard. Yes. Right. Well, but then John um, lacked his brother's attractive qualities, right? He wasn't as good looking. He was bad on the battlefield. He lost every battle he ever entered he um, and then he would raise taxes anyway. He was manipulative. He had a way of using, um, basically finding the unscrupulous people and making them the tax collectors. <coughs> and is that volume uh, two, by the way? This is this is volume two. Yeah. Okay. And so he and he had uh, a way of, um, so he became a tyrant, uh. Because he was, so it says, the, t- the this is the quote, um, uh, there was a common law and administration which called for the loyalty of the people as well as a king that called for the loyalty of the people. Uh, beneath violence and impulsiveness, hatred and selfishness, personal and class interest, there existed a sense that there was a public duty in the function of government, but the temperamental tyranny of John divided the feelings between obedience to the head of the state and defense of the law and legal rights, right? So there that the people were divided. You read the writings of the time. Well, we're supposed to submit and the head of state is doing one thing and the law is doing another thing. And how do we choose between when the head of state does something illegal, what does submission look like? That's what they're struggling with. That's exactly the question that we began struggling with in 2019. Wait, the law says this, but the people in charge say this, what does submission look like? Which authority, which authority do we submit to when the authorities come into conflict with one another? Mm. So, we're not the first people that have struggled with this. What happened was um, the church s- tried to put in Stephen Langton as archbishop 
Um, and the, and the King at that point refused and blockaded the church's appointment of a new archbishop. The archbishop was going to come in and solve the problem, but he knew that Stephen Langton was a, was a common law guy and was going to say the law is the authority over the king. So we, to submit, we have to obey the law when the king disobeys it. So he blockaded Stephen Langton's appointment. And so the Pope excommunicates England as a whole, right? And so now they, they lock the doors to the churches. They do, they, all of this stuff because the, because the Pope had said, I'm excommunicating the king. Right, I'm excommunicating the king and the and the kingdom until he stops acting illegally, acting like he's the one that gets to put the bishops in when that's the church's job, mm. right? And so the uh, and that brought to a, the forefront what was actually going on when the church insisted that the uh, and had a clear had a clear understanding. No, the king is under the law. We obey the law. Because that's what submission looks like. Because the law, the written law of the land, or it wasn't written. That's that's what ends up coming out of this. Is this is when they start writing things down. The law of the land is in the public vows and in the public judgments. Um, that that law is over the king. And so, with if the king disobeys it, in order to remain submissive to Romans thirteen, we have to obey the law and disregard the king when he becomes a tyrant, right? So it, the argument was submission to the law when the king disregards it is what Romans 13 is talking about. Because ultimately the question is, how do we submit to God when we have two competing authorities happening right now? When we now? got two competing, competing authorities, the the king is under the law. And so that so you begin the development, and, and that's when that this understanding in common law begins to develop. So John is the one, he's the one in the Robin Hood, Right. He's the Robin Hood cartoon, right? That, that Robin Hood is fighting against and he's stealing it. And so when the little rabbits say death to tyrants, right? They're talking about King John. That's a real king in history that was a real tyrant. So they end up writing the Magna Carta because they, they basically corner him and they say, we've got to write down what are the rights and the laws and you're going to sign it. And then you're going to act according to it. Now it ends up, he, he ends up signing it and then going back on it. And it, there's a, a tussle and Henry that you were mentioning earlier, he's between the, the writing of the Magna Carta the first time. And then the 1297 establishment of the Magna Carta, right? That, that Henry comes in and he writes out the law theory that gets the Magna Carta moved into the law of England finally right? so, so it's written it's signed it's gone back on there's a, a fight between the authorities and then by by the end of the by by 1300 it is finally established as law over the course of from 1215 to 1297 so that's so that's not alfred that's henry right that's so, so john is the king john who is he's the one that first signs the magna carta and then it is established as law by the uh, by the um, king finally in 1297. So it's I think it's three kings later, two kings later. Um, so that's 
the the Magna Carta and the the man the man who you were quoting earlier Henry is the one who develops or writes down the law theory that everyone Bracton was, Henry Bracton Bra- Henry Bracton yeah Thank so you. Okay, he yeah. writes down the law theory um, of common law between the writings of the two between yes. the writing and the establishment of the Magna Carta so you get the Magna Carta that happens because of of King John Henry Bracton comes in here I think it, De- Devon or Devon Devon I think might have been his real name so but <laughs> so, oh, interesting yeah so um Henry Bracton comes in and establishes that law in between there that becomes accepted later the right? the, the theory right the theory the, the, he's he's the one that writes down so because before this every it's the the traditions and the laws are all they're there the freedoms are there they're in use and what it is is the the what is the common wealth of all of mankind? That's what the law is supposed to defend, right? Mm. Um, the And then the law, it's called common law also because it applies to everyone, right? It applies. So yeah, that's one of the that, things. It applies to everybody and every nation yeah. at all times. It wasn't a place or, or a people that it didn't apply to. Right. The, 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 so, well, it, it, there wasn't a people under the jurisdiction Right. Everybody in the English speaking world was under the English common law and the French had their law. And right. So so it, it established these are the things that everyone here, the, it, this is common to all. So it's not like the king is under one law and the common right. is under another law. Right. So, I think the distinction I was trying to make was that, that the way they understood common law coming from natural law, the natural law applies yes. to all men everywhere. The, the natural law. law exactly. Yeah, the yeah. natural law applies to everyone. The common law is the working out in history of the uh, conformity to natural, natural law. law in the location um, that they're the, currently at in the location that they're currently at how yeah. do we and so so this is where the their understanding was you look at the law of the land and then you say how do we take us another step towards maturity what where are and and you do that in a legal way right by setting precedent in judgments in hard judgments the same way moses did it Right. Moses mm. did it by taking the hard laws, the, the places that bumped up against the edges of the law and making a ruling that set precedent. That's mm-hmm. what Deuteronomy is. They're rulings that set legal precedent. And um, and you do it in the hard cases. That's where you develop our wisdom and our law. Right. Um, and that understanding um, is very anti Gnostic. Right. Because you're not imposing from coercively a new law you are developing um sort of an art of law that that gains wisdom as it grows i guess since we're here now uh, there's kind of two things that that you made me think about as you're talking about that's really good but so help me understand um if someone now is excommunicated from the church. It seems to have no bearing whatsoever on the culture. None, absolutely right. none. But as you're talking, we've seemed to have separate the government so much. It's become Machiavellian that there's only really one real government and that's it. Right. And you right. even see then that their King John, right. Is upset about the church excommunicating him that he's trying to act mockery. I got all the power. I'll shut down your churches. Right. So it's, it's not like it's a new problem, but it was such an issue. If Joe Biden is 
excommunicated, he's not shutting down any churches because the authority of the church right now has no jurisdiction in American culture. Right. None. It's just like another entity of a 501c3. Who cares what a 501c3 says? As long as they don't tell you to vote. Yeah, he might do something, you know, he might do something where they, you know, you saw this with the the use of the IRS by. um, Yeah, yeah. Someone with Trump, right? I can't remember what that was. Yeah, you, you, so the the IRS does sometimes get weaponized and the threat of removal of somebody's ex- tax incentives involved in five months. You might, but that we haven't seen that on a church for, yet though. I've seen it discussed. You know, uh, you yeah. Yeah. Pe- people are like, why is it? Why do churches get tax exempt status? We got to get rid of that. That's look at all that tax money being flushed away for a old myth. You know, yeah, you yeah. see that, um, but they don't understand how important it has been throughout history that but, the churches are not taxed, right? Because that because that gives them the position to rebuke the government when it's being unjust. Right? That's the that's the point of a tax free status. Right. The churches are tax free without a five hundred one c three. Yeah, I mean, depending on the state laws, I guess there's probably differences, but but churches just are automatically tax free uh, by their very the, objective. By, yeah, by their definition, legally what they are. Um, the the push to be to be a five hundred one c three was a, I think, failure, an unfortunate mistake. But why doesn't why doesn't the Lord's table or, or excommunication from that have the gravity in our culture right now that it that it should? Because you know that's one of the harshest punishments a church could give to someone is to excommunicate, and and it has it should have the same sort of discipline feel that a government. You know, throwing someone in jail should, you know, or even beyond that, like, okay, you know, you can get killed for this, right? It should have some sort of yeah. um, real power to it. And I don't feel that in our culture. How how do we lose that? Why don't we have that? I think it's just because of our disunity, right? You just, you walk down the street and go to a new church and go and you're restored without ever having to repent. So we... Yeah, without ever having to repent. So, so it's that's our that's our fault, right? It's because we've allowed the church to be divided up into so many denominations, right? And when done, when denominations started, um, denominations were born because all of a sudden you have people's ability to move to a new landmass um, expanded, right? So all these people move to America. They all speak different languages, have different hymnals. You, they all have the Bible in their own language, and so they. You go in, and you got you got the German Lutheran Church, you got the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and you got the English speaking Anglican Church, and you've got the Swiss speaking Church over there, and and they all speak different languages and have different hymnals, and so they all. But the and denominations are sort of born out of that setting, um, not on purpose, right? Eventually, they the church splitting starts and then you've got all sorts of other denominations that are born. Um, but the way that you, I mean, if we can't acknowledge one another's discipline, then we're never then expecting anyone else to doesn't make any sense. So, so here's a good example. So that's a law in, problem too, though, isn't it? Totally. We do, So we don't understand that the, that, you know, the Baptist church around the corner has jurisdiction that we share. 
mm, right? As elders, meet, right? As elders, right? So they're elders and have the same jurisdiction that we do, right? And so we are uh, in down in California. We had a situation. You know, where, I'm sorry, to, I'll let you go in just a second. But but you just described, man. I'm gonna get so much hate on this. You described whether people like it or not, Presbyterianism. <laughs> right, like whether you like it or if that's true, then there's right. unofficial forms of presbytery that, that are happening just by the nature of their authority. Yeah, well, and and I mean, this is where like you because but you don't solve this by everybody becoming Presbyterian, right? No, no, no. Think. I'm just talking about the you, government you of this. it. Yeah, the the you um you solve this by be getting into relationships with the other churches in your city, um and. And then yeah. respecting one another's respecting one another's jurisdictions and and you know if if somebody is ordained in a Baptist church and my church refuses to acknowledge that ordination somehow, right? Then I'm the one that is the schismatic, right? That's, right. Um, but he, so here's a good example. So we in down in California we had a lady come to our church and after a couple of weeks noticed that she's not taking communion or one of my elders did. And, and so just said, Hey, you know, why are you not taking communion? And she's like, well, I'm trying to figure out what to do. I got uh, put under discipline at my last church. Okay. So let's, so let's meet this week. We'll talk about it. You tell me the story. She tells me the story and she's like, and I don't, you know what? I think they were wrong. And I was like, well, two things. Let me tell you. One, even from your story, they weren't wrong. <laughs> but secondly, they have the authority to do that, so which we fully acknowledge. They were yeah. Calvary Chapel Church. Um, we fully acknowledge that they have the authority. So you, their ban or their excommunication applies to our table too. Right. right? And so, um, but I want to work with you to get you out of that, but it's going to require repentance and you need to ask them to forgive you. Um, and so I'll help you write a letter, but I'm going to get their side of the story too, so that I know that we're actually repenting of the right things. And she's like, okay, right. She was convicted and wanted to, mm. wanted to be taken out of, out of church discipline and be restored to the table. But so I called the pastor and say, Hey, I'm, this is Jason. I'm from the church over here. And so-and-so has been coming to our church and she told me she'd been put on a church discipline. And he said, how dare you question our authority? And he hung up on me. Right. <laughs> and, and I, <laughs> I was like, mm, I don't think that's obviously he did not know what I was going to say. Right. So I call back and I just leave a message. He lets it go to voicemail. I'll leave a message saying, Hey pastor, I just, I, uh, I think you misunderstood. We are upholding the discipline. And I want to know what it is she needs to repent of so that I can encourage her to repent of whatever it is you put her in her excommunication for, but we have refused her at our table. Um, but I need, I don't know how to counsel her towards repentance unless you tell me what the judgment was. He called back. He was like, I'm so sorry. I've that's, this has never happened. Right. He said, I've been a pastor 20 years. We've been putting people under discipline. I've only ever gotten a call from another pastor that was upset that I had used church discipline. Mm. I was like, Oh no, that's not. So even from her version of the story, she 100% <laughs> you, you were right. And, but it's working and she's now convicted 
and but she's convicted because her daughter brought her to our church and when when i said as long as you're not under church discipline with your local church she held back right and so then i got to work with the pastor and the elders and help this this woman write a letter of repentance and then deliver it and be restored and but in 20 years he had never had another church uphold their church discipline and he's just just a he's a, a, a pastor that had been faithfully preaching the gospel and being faithful where he was and in um presbyterian well, that's Jeopardy. all i heard i, I just heard presbyterian <laughs> yeah. so is that but what you say only the, they only work if, if we have, if uh, we have relationships and we uphold one another's but that's what i'm but that's what discipline. i mean like the idea and the concept is an inescapable concept and when you function and operate within the law it brings beauty yeah. right that's does, beautiful yeah. And it, it it could work. I mean, it could work in a context where everybody's, you know, Epis, Episcopalian. Yeah, exactly. Of, of sort. It could work in because it could work in a, Presbyterian is true whether or not you believe it or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The Presbyterian government is true whether or not you believe it or not. Right? right. That's just the way it God's is the, made old the world. Form of church government too. So. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, but I, I'm being funny. But in one way right. or not, I'm just, I'm actually being serious in the way that there's some things that are inescapable and we have to understand that pretty quick. So a pastor who's operating like that, even with a charismatic church who doesn't even fall mm-hmm. in line with that at all, those realities are coming together and, and helping people flourish just like a rose or a flower because they're honoring yeah. the way the law is ran, the way the law is done. And they're saying right. this person and that person is beautified because of that, right? And so. Right. Because the church is a pub, the church is a public institution, right? Right. It's a public, but it's just right now it's a fractured public institution, so it can't function the way it ought to, while fractured, right? It's it's so, so it's intended to function in a certain way, and and I mean I think the way that you do that is getting to the pastors all getting to know one another in a particular city, and then working there, and you know we had. Um, in Santa Cruz, they had the elders of the city, the evangelical um, churches, and they were working on bringing in other kinds of churches as well, functioned in such a way that they, that the pastors all voted in elders of the city to, mm. to try to function. Because that's, you know, Did that's, you say they, like, voted, is, they voted in elders of the of city? Of the city. Like a yeah. presbytery? <laughs> yeah i mean they were wow. they just all agreed like this is we've got this like we can do this and so you've got baptists charismatics <laughs> um anglicans the i love it the presbyterians right all working together and they just they're like we're gonna vote in the elders of the city because we because we are the city the church of this city and so and it was a it was beautiful and it was awkward often the attempts to have worship services together was beautiful and so awkward and it was mm, wonderful. I know? love it. <laughs> it I do love it. So, and I always, you know, when, when it came time, I always asked if I could take the confession of sin because I knew that unless somebody said, Ooh, we're worshiping together. Can I take the confession of sin? There wouldn't be one. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So exactly. I was like, That's oh, so brilliant. And I, and I was, and then just do my part and, and, and have some great, made some great friends, we ended up sharing a building with um, some very charismatic um, folks that were kind of home home church charismatics, and then the Assemblies of God Church. And the three of us shared a building and worked it because it's so expensive <laughs> in California. Yeah, yeah. We're like high church Presbyterians and working with 
these groups and, and trying to, and you know, we had to go in one Sunday and I had to call my wonderful friend, Brandon and say, Hey, my friend, when you guys worship on Saturday, can you not throw glitter anymore? Cause we have to vacuum it up, you know, but I, but I knew Brandon, right? He's my friend. He's a faithful, faithful pastor, faithful guy. And they had liturgical traditions like that involved glitter. <laughs> And we had to figure out how to work with one another. And, and we were blessed by them. They prayed like they, 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 they prayed with faith. They were wonderful folks. And that was something that I knew I needed to learn and hanging out with them. Like they prayed better than me. You know, you know, the, pro- the, the you know, here, here's one. Here, well, and I, then they could learn like maybe throwing glitter is not. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> but who, uh, Paul you know, didn't who knows? Glitter. Maybe that's something I need to learn. We never <laughs> talked about it. Nah, I don't think Paul was just like, about glitter. Hey, my setup crew's getting tired of having to vacuum up glitter <laughs> before it's, church. It's, it's in the communion bread, bro. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it, they were, they were, uh, they, he was, he was a godly man, a godly pastor in a different tradition. And I had to learn a new language. He had to learn a new language so we could communicate a new dialect, I guess you'd say. Well, you know, the, uh, our terminology even. Yeah. The, one of the things that I've learned from being more reformed, being Presbyterian, being CREC, I, I will say this. I've learned the beauty of ecumenism, right? Like mm-hmm. if you can do it the right way, most people think about that and all they think about is the stuff that they're going to lose. They never think about the stuff right. that they're going. And so they think like, I'll lose this. I'll lose that. And it's like some of that stuff you probably need to, to lose and it's not helping <laughs> you. And a lot of the stuff you need to give and say, so don't think about the two. Here's some, here's, I, I want to move to something you talked about with me on the phone and I had to stop you because this is going back to come. What were you going to say? No, no, I just, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're going to say because we talked about a lot of stuff. I know, I know, but I wrote it down because you brought it up earlier as it relates to, you know, we we're talking about John, um, and, and then we talked about, uh, Henry Bracton who comes in here in, in the middle of that, that tiff and writes out, uh, what was agreed to for the most part between in the Magna Carta and then we have a coming to fruition. Um, and so now, as in America, t- put a pin in that and just move all the way to modern America. Yeah. Um, and you, we talk about precedent completely different now than what it actually is. And you were explaining that for me. And it's, I know it's kind of a jump from common law, Magna Carta, common law to modern setup. But I think that understanding what precedent actually is, because you've been talking about precedent the whole precedent the whole time with the law of Moses, right? Moses is hearing cases the hardest cases that are out there and then putting down this huge um marker of this is the precedent for this type of judicious situation civil situation this is the precedent right. he's laying it out right and so now when we think about precedent we think about as an individual who's um it's it's, it's enlightenment almost it's enlightenment the way we think about it where it's like a judge is sitting in and over the authority, making a precedent on how he thinks this thing should go. And yeah. and then we're taking his authority over the authority and then reading another position into it so that if it's a bad law, like we saw this with 2020, right? Uh, with, with judges saying, yeah, the government can absolutely force you to go home in your houses because he does have legal authority for emergencies to uh, take away your ability to go outside and work and so on and so forth. And so judges set precedent that 
that was okay. But that's not how we should understand precedent, though, according to the way we understand common law. Right. And and this this is where so in the Magna Carta is sometimes it's called the first constitution. Uh, I think I don't think that's a helpful way to do it to to think about it, but the because of that, there's many constitutions have been written. Right, the idea that you've got to write things down that that is established really well. And when you get to our, um, you know, our first ten amendments, um, the Bill of Rights, that they're realizing you got to write things down. Right, you got to write things down, and I'll look at them and I'll agree upon them. That that's really important. The way um, now, uh, but but that's because the understanding um, of law as setting boundaries that are negative, right? negative boundaries, don't go beyond this, don't go that way, don't do this, um, versus laws that tell you what to do. Negative and positive um, law. Negative and positive law, right? Laws that say you must do this, you must buy car insurance, you must buy, right? That that that's a that's the old roman um imperial law mm. right uh that where law tells you what to do not protects a space for you to live right so protects protects your freedom so that you have space to live law is supposed to tell you what to do in an imperial setting we've moved into that imperial understanding so that you've got um people saying you must do this. You must do that. And you get really goofy laws sometimes um, on that are still on the books to this day. Um, that And uh, at some point, I'll get to tell the whole world about a show that we're doing at um, Laura, a reality show that has to do with the law that's really funny, um, that has to do with like finding the goofiest weirdest laws on the books right and um because when you start thinking in terms of the law as as the the means by which people are made to live right so rather than the law as protecting a space for people to live um and then the gospel is the thing that is the means by which we are able to live mm. right the when you start to think of the law as the means by which people are able to live, the law is the things that, which gives us life. Then you start establishing laws that tell people how to live. And now that's how we think of precedent. So, um, the, so something like Roe versus Wade, even, even as a precedent setting decision, it was used in a way that precedent shouldn't have been used. Right. So um, when a, a lot, when somebody is said is told like, no, you should have allowed this person to be able to get an abortion for that to immediately overturn all of the laws in the States that didn't allow abortion. Um, that's not how precedent works. That's not how that's, that shouldn't have been the way, that that precedent was used, except for we had changed our understanding of what of precedent the law means, as yeah. as it as if a a law can impose something you have to do right. So and and so this has shifted it, it's shifted in our understanding of rights right. So um, rather than rights being things that the government's not allowed to do right, 
that's what a right mm. to freedom is. A right is something that the government is, is a limitation on the government versus something somebody is required to do. Right. So if, if you have a right to, um, you know, a, a, a right to, this is, uh, this gets into healthcare. Truth. This is perfect. Yeah. Healthcare. Healthcare is a perfect one, right? If you have a right to healthcare, then that means somebody else can be forced to give it to you. Right. Somebody else, a, some, a doctor can be forced to give it to you by law. Well, right? not just so, that the government is forced to make sure that you get it. Right. The government is right. It's the same with a, you know, a right, a right to an education, right? You say something like it, but now should the government, does the government have a right to keep you from getting an education? No, they don't. Right. We have a right week because we have, we should, we ought to be free from the coercion that stops an education, but that's different than the government being required to give you an education. Well, and, and though that's not even a category in which the government has should by its nature have the ability to even think in. Right. So the government shouldn't even have the category. Now, if, if, and I'm talking about you, I'm thinking of the tiers here. So the civil magistrate all the way up to the, the yeah. federal government is not even in their thinking on whether or not somebody's getting education or not, right? That's not even right. in it's, their category. It's outside of, it's outside of their jurisdiction. But right. when, when you have governments stopping, you know, and so this, this is where it gets tricky, right? You have governments stopping, uh, children of slaves from getting an education, right? Right. They're breaking the law. By stopping somebody trying to get an education, right? But the problem, the, the law breaking isn't the fact that they're stopping it from getting an education. It's that they're interfering in their life in this way at all, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. That's that's what I mean. Is that, yeah. that the interference is that's illegal, right? Right. But what happened was they said it was it was declared illegal. The precedent was you can't keep people from getting an education, mm-hmm. right? That became an argument for why you must give them an education. Right. Right. But that's a different, that's a different argument and it's, but it's a different view of law altogether. Right. Mm. So then, um, if, cause if that's the case, then by law, then you must take taxes and spend them in a particular way. Right. And if you have, so as if an education is, the commonwealth of all mankind and that's the their the job to protect it but that's not this that is, is not the part of the the forced education is different than saying it would it's illegal to stop education but that's what a negative law would be right the government can't stop newspapers from printing Mm. Is not the same thing as the government needs to print a newspaper and give information out, right? Yeah. So this is so when you go back to Magna Carta and common law, what we're ultimately doing with common law and Magna Carta, those those are negative in their function, right? So they're negative law in the sense that, like like the Ten Commandments, that should not steal, that should not kill, commit adultery, all those things. Those are negative, right? It's not telling you, hey. Um, you must make sure your horse and buggy are tied this way, right? There are responsibilities and duties individuals have, and if they don't follow through that, then the law comes in and says, well, you're 
you're obligated to manage and take care of this person because you weren't being right uh, judicious in how you were handling the situation, right? Or not judicious, right. but mindful of loving your neighbor, which is the law. Loving God, loving your neighbor, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and so w- with common law and with Magna Carta, they're working in the negative form against the federal government, what they can't do to the freedom to individuals, right? They're moving. They're they're oh they're moving in that direction. Okay. Right. So so you don't read the Magna Carta and say ah they've finally arrived at right. everything. Right. Right. You you read the Magna Carta and say oh I see the direction they're moving. Yeah. Um. They're establishing the things that are traditions and such. Um. And you know the the next. But you but the difference between the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights is recognizable. Right. It has. The, the common law has continued to develop and move. Um, it was really um, f- legal theory. What it was beneficial for legal theory to run into African mm. slave trade, the African slave trade again, mm. uh, because the whole new set of questions come up, new hard laws come up and the English, um, they work, they, they, um, begin by saying, well, no, we'll accept slave trade here. Sure. But then the Christians, uh, the evangelical Christians in particular say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is way outside the scope of legal common law theory. Mm. And the, the people that want to allow it, they, they want to put the slave trade under economic, the economic law and regulated under economic law. And the, the, um, the, Wesleyan evangelical Christians, they say, no, no, this, the, the laws about slavery go under the laws of freedom and rights. When they step on English soil, the rights that are common to all uh, on the soil apply to them, right? They speak English. So the English common law applies to them. And there are people that make the argument that, well, no, it, it, their property. So they, it goes under economic law and that's where the um you have the the push that you know the the push towards wilberforce is making in the law uh to to making legal arguments now the legal arguments go, are all based on common law and but then you also have um you have a whole you have people working in writing plays writing poetry writing novels right that are changing that are trying to get this understanding out to everyone and here's what's really interesting, right? At the time, nobody wanted to put on plays in the poor neighborhoods, right? So there were some Christians that began writing abolitionist plays and putting them on in the poor neighborhoods. And the poor uh, in England began to see that the, um, the they began to identify with the African slaves mm. and say, oh, well, actually, we're in the same position. We had to fight for our rights as the poor in England. Right. Um, for to, to gain our human rights um, under common law. And they are not getting their day in court to claim their rights uh, as humans in England uh, on our soil, speaking our language. Right. They're not. Um, and so the the House of Commons who are put in place by the by the poor, mostly the House of Lords are put in place by the wealthy and the House of Commons are put in place by the poor start getting pressure from the outside uh, because of all of the plays and the poems and the novels mm. that are changing the opinion that are teaching people how to identify 
with um, these people as people. And then William Wilberforce is pushing on the legal side. And those two meet in the middle and put enough pressure on the House of Commons and the House of Lords for them to outlaw slavery and grant and grant legally all the rights of an Englishman to the slaves. Mm. Because in America, we solved our problem with war. Our problem lasted a lot longer, right? Our, uh, our problem was not, uh, was not solved in the hearts and the minds of the people putting pressure and then legally from the other direction. Uh, our, we, we, had to had to whether we had to or not we did solve our problem and you with know war this is why and I, so i it agree creates, that creates a deep a deep rivalrous division that you don't get in some of the other places i think that's where we see the first real american revolution mm-hmm. so yep. there is the place where we need to have some sort of upheaval of you know the law in order so to be able whole, to implement top down type yeah, of the whole social order right the whole we, social we, order that's right the war um the war is a real upheaval to the social order now which is interesting because um, if you go back and look at this is where history is really interesting you go look at that time all the things that we've been talking about and the influences of thoughts and these ideas you know they're are they're taken the metaphysical realities, you know, while you were talking too, I was thinking about the, this is why you have to dehumanize the -hmm. people is so that you can fit them inside of an economic environment versus uh, a human one, right? Like property. Yeah. Yes. And so that's, if you do that, then you can fit them inside an economical category. Right. And you have people making the same argument in America, right? But you've got the abolitionist movement that is, um, that's growing in America as well. That um, and growing down south, you know, most of the abolitionist groups were down south, and um, you know, it's the the and who knows, maybe given time that it would have been solved in a less violent way, which would have been. Well, I don't know good. what the American abolitionists. They were pretty violent. The American abolitionists seem to be fine with you know. This is where you have Frederick Douglass, who is sitting here a part of the American um, abolitionist movement and speaking at their events, but and they're ripping up the Constitution. And Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass is like, whoa, hey, I'm yep. with y'all. But that's but, the very way out of this for us is through right, the Constitution. Right. And, and, and some of that is because I think Fred, you know, Frederick Douglass was well studied and not all the abolitionists were, right? Good point. Fred, Fred, Frederick Douglass was, he was, he had, he had uh, gone and gotten himself an education um, and was, was well studied. So well, and and too, if you look at it, it's like, well, if we if we do what you're talking about, the first people who are going to get hit on this is going to be the slaves. Like, if it comes to that, yeah. then it's like we are, you know, which is kind of what happened during the moment of Reconstruction. You know, you mm-hmm. got yep. people now who are considered property, and you know, who if they don't belong to anybody, I don't have anybody to answer to, then I'll just mow them down. That's right. They had they hadn't been sufficiently humanized in the imagination of the people as a whole. And that's, and that is, that's a tragedy and the church should have been leading the way. And it's an, that, that was, that's, you look back and you're like, well, that's the church's fault, right? Mm. The church, the church is the one that should have been leading the way on that and failed to, I mean, you, the, because you, you, 
as you continue through the history, um, you know, you have, you have some really high, you know, high points in the, like you look at like the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is the Harlem Renaissance had a really strong Christian flavor to it. Now it's taught as if that wasn't there anymore, mm. right? That now it's taught as if it was part of the revolution, you know, part of the move towards revolution, part of the move towards, um, you know, kind of radical democracy or something like that. Uh, communism. But, but uh, if you actually read the poetry of the Harlem Renaissance itself, that was popular at the time, there's a significant amount of Christian poetry in there, a significant, but it, uh, so the, the black church was doing the work uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, you know, preaching the gospel, working, uh, transforming people's imaginations of themselves, but over and over that economic, that, that economic argument would continue to, rear its ugly head right and so you had the black wall street the destruction of black wall street right they start getting too much money and you can go in and destroy it what's crazy it's the same argument that was made about the jews in russia same argument that was made about the jews um so all the pogroms in russia in germany too and yeah the same argument that was made in germany what those aren't those people aren't real people they can't have that much money that's not allowed the jews can't have that much money same argument was made about the black communities that were making a lot of money getting really wealthy like they they had been dehumanized and turned into an economic an economic necessity rather than a human neighbor in the imagination of the people and the church hadn't done the work it was ought to have done to well, to it, transform the imagination of the people at a corporate level. And that's exactly why I hate the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Because that didn't change. We became economic necessity there too. Yep. Right. And and so you know, anyway, we'll man. We this is like well, this, Black uh, History this is what's Month. What's interesting? Like, <laughs> it, it is Black History Month. But Booker T. Washington. This is one of the things that was really interesting about him right yeah, he yeah. understood the he he said because the it was in his day that 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 they were losing voting rights they weren't gaining them back and and he said you know what just leave us alone and give us a couple of generations well that was frederick Douglass. what do we do with the negro because everybody was asking well if he's free we got all kinds of problems they could see all the problems what happened with the negro right. if they freed him right and frederick Douglass is yeah. like you do nothing with the negro right you leave right. him and alone that's, washington makes the exact same argument right he said just just leave us alone yeah right we don't get a vote we don't get a vote right and he's sometimes he's sometimes blasted for this um but i think this was one of his really wise moments he said we don't get a vote oh you're not going to give us the vote then just leave us alone and he said um give give us the give us the freedoms that you have yeah and if with the freedoms that you have we will prove ourselves indispensable equal under the law let us let us prove our humanity to yep. you then because he understood that's to deny a vote is to deny the humanity. Right. 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 He understood that, but he said, if you don't want us to be a part of your system, just leave us alone. Let us build our own. Right. Which is, um, which I wish it would have happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. Every time it happened though, that economic, that the economic injustices, um, 
the, the economic definitions come back in and you know, and the, undercut the black community again. You know, I know everybody wants to talk about the tragedies that happened in the black community and uh, with America and all of those. I can point to I've studied them. I, I can point yeah. to so many. When I read all of these, you know, my biggest problem with these tragedies, you, you can look at the uh, Colfax in Louisiana, the Colfax massacre. That was horrific. Yeah. Right? That was horrific. Um, probably the worst one. You know, people don't talk about that. You got Rose uh, Roseland. You got Black Wall Street. All those those situations the biggest problem with all the situations weren't that they happened even though that was a massive massive problem it was that there was no justice for those problems that was the thing it was that the law didn't work in the same way you know and the fact that the law so in colfax (laughs) the way that colfax operated the law was used completely the opposite way because you have uh, for the first time, you, so you have the civil rights movement of 1864, 67, I think it was one of those, one of those 64, 67, I think it was 60, 1886, I think it was, um, it was 90 years before the civil rights movement. So um, count back for me, somebody do the math. And you have black Republicans who win the, um, in Louisiana, Right. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. And, and and so they have won this office and the white Democrats come there and basically kill everybody there because they're mad. about. I'm giving them a short, short version of the story. The law then was used to say, uh, because I think of the Fifth Amendment and the 14th Amendment who that was just ratified and set into place. Um, but the uh, 13th and 14th Amendment, they said that the amendments only applied to the federal government. Not to how individuals interacted with other individuals. So <laughs> they, they, so the right to bear arms that they have, so, um, uh, Second Amendment, right? Uh, those amendments didn't apply because part of what the, the white Democrats wanted to do was take away the guns that, that they had there that were protecting City Hall for the black representatives that were in the place. Right. And so the 300 white Democrats come to tear, take the guns away and to kill everybody and mask everybody, which they did. But when it went to, cause I think Grant was president at the time, but I think they found only nine of the people <laughs> and right. they tried them. Nobody was convicted. And the reason they weren't convicted because they said, well, no, the, the right to bear arms and the right to uh, freely assemble and all these rights are were given to and against the federal government and not to the local government, which, by the way, if it's true, then local governments then have a right to disbar you from bearing arms, which is what is happening right now in Hawaii as they're pointing to why you can't bear arms there or have a right to keep arms. So it's funny how, like, if you didn't fight for these rights here at this point in time and let the law misapply, Right. The situation, because the right to bear arms is is a citizen right. <laughs> right. right. It, yeah. It's not just something the government can't impose, but it's a citizen right as well in the it's, in the nation. It's a, it's a right that the government is not allowed to to undo. Right. Right. And so it doesn't matter what government. Exactly. Right? Exactly. The, the civil government cannot undo that. It cannot take that away. But this is the point, and, though, is if precedent if, is set by something like that. Well, that's the president. Then why can't Hawaii use that precedent? Yeah. Right. And, and that, but that's why you're supposed to have the, that. That's why the constitution is so important because it's the law of the land and you're supposed to be able to go back to it and say, okay, this judgment was made and it sets precedent, but it set it 
in the wrong way, right? A no, a new tough case can undo previous precedent, right? And our, our problem is so we that we haven't stood up and stopped it in the small moments. Uh huh. Um, it's the same with gay marriage, right? Right. Lice, marriage licenses were created so that you could stop interracial marriage. Mm. That was the purpose. That was why they said we need some licenses. You have to come ask us because these Christians over here, they keep marrying across racial lines mm. and we've got to keep, we've got to keep our racial lines pure because there were Nazis in America making up, making laws and running things. So they, they create uh, marriage licenses to be able to stop interracial marriage and what is it? 70 years later, mm. get, they're giving them to dudes and dudes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, okay. So we should have been up in arms at the first point, right? At the, at the first crime scene, we should have been up in arms and saying, you have no right to require us to buy a license from you to be able to get married. Right. That, if Jesus says this marriage is okay, you don't have any right because that's not you're outside your jurisdiction. Beautiful, the sun came out. I saw that. You, you know, this is this is um, this is where. So going back to understanding what common law is, this is where I want to end on because you're hitting at something. Where you said that this is something that Jesus has given us. So this is why the Ninth Amendment right now is so important because it's saying that there are rights that are not written down inside of the Bill of Rights, inside of the Constitution, that do not belong to the government, but belong to the people, right? right. And so, but what the government wants to do is to try and write down all the rights that you have, which is why when they write out bills, they are thousands of pages because they're trying to write out the laws that you get to have with this and they get and this is what some of the way that they subvert are subversive in moving foundational laws by putting them into bills right then so you got to right. be super careful about that but one of the things that i think so the reason we don't hear common law talked about hardly at all anymore um, is because common law is explicitly christian Yes. Right. Like you, you cannot take like you cannot talk about common law without talking about Christianity. They are almost synonymous. Common law in itself is explicitly Christian. And guess whose laws are based off of common law? <laughs> well, I mean, all of our laws, all of our laws are are were at one point. <laughs> so and this is so this is the Ninth Amendment I figure. We should read it. Yeah. Um the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, mm -hmm. right? That people made in the image of God have certain rights, and they've written down some of them, right? The enumerated, right? like they put them in in a list. That doesn't mean that the ones that we didn't put in the list are not still their rights. Right. right. So exactly. And and the the problem is that how the Ninth Amendment ends up being used is w they've changed the definition of the word rights mm. from from things that the government is not allowed to stop to mm. things that the government has to provide. So that's something. So this is um 
this is something that was really important the way that it was said. I can't I'm trying to say it right. Um, the government doesn't grant you the freedom of speech, right? Um, yeah. Right. Or, or grant you the freedom to protect yourself. The government acknowledges that those are rights that God has already given people. And then they are saying we acknowledge and submit under that authority of God that these are rights that people have. That's what's supposed yeah. to be the situation. But the way that right. we think about rights is the government says that I have freedom of speech. <laughs> right. The government ha- has has Granted. promised me yeah. yes. freedom of speech. And that's why you can say like you have that people have a right to education. Right. And what that means is everybody has to pay into a fund that is then used to make sure everybody gets an education. Yeah. Right. Now, I I believe that people have a right to an education in the other sense of the word right. The government is not allowed to stop me from getting an education. The government can't burn the libraries down or throw things out that it doesn't like. Right. The government has no jurisdiction in the library. Right. right. Um, that's a different understanding, though, um, of rights. Right. So by letting the definition of rights be changed, we have let the law be chain the law becomes something that it wasn't intended to be so when we look at um so now when laws are being made you the reason you have so i don't know how anybody in america can talk about foundational constitutional forms of liberty and law without talking about common law right so you can't i don't think you can't can't yeah you i mean you this that's why i sent you that text message about the that that summary of the Magna Carta though, is because they were trying to say, um, uh, yeah, the Magna Carta was important, but it was bad because it didn't actually, um, center the rights in the power of the government the way that it ought to have. Right. So it didn't take care of the poor. It didn't do it. So, well, this, that wasn't the job this, of the government. To do that, that was the job of the, the government, right? That's as my job as a neighbor, yeah. Right. That's my job as a Christian. That's mm. there's a, that's um, right. And I and I you know I could there there might be a way um, there there might be a way to 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 uh, there 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 are ways that the government can is undermining sure the poor. yeah they're suppo- poor, supposed to support human flourishing that, that that need to be gotten rid of but the um the revolutionary understanding and the common law understanding are so at odds that the revolutionary understanding has to get rid of common law and or completely redefined it so, redefine it into a new system so as we're talking about common law cuz we're going to do this again um next week cuz i think we just kind of got a fairly good introduction into this um uh, but what i what do we what I'm trying to learn from this is we're talking about common law, Jason, is that there isn't any form and function that God's standard isn't applying to how we think about civil relationships. Yeah. Right. And that's what I'm thinking about. So when people are thinking about law, they're, what they're actually fighting over right now is power. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because there's there's no concept of there, there's no concept of jurisdiction. And so right. there just becomes raw power, or we're fighting over who has the the raw power. 
But what I'm realizing is that God has been working in time and space in history to mature us to a full man like Christ. And he's done that in some beautiful ways through certain spats in history that have bringing about uh, clarity to natural law. And helping us understand the relationship between that with special revelation and God's Deuteronomic law, um, and Christ being the fulfillment of all those things. Right. So that we can in relate, like you did with that pastor in relationship. No, not just at a federal government level or in a local government level, but even from person to person, what are our interactions and how are they supposed to be? Um, and, what is going to bring about the righteous standard along with human flourishing in a beautiful way? Right. How do right. I, how do this is at the bottom of it is how do I love my neighbor? And yeah. I, you and, know, and this is, yeah, it's that, it's that, how do, how do I embrace the jurisdiction God has given me with joy and gratefulness? Right. And it's, that's where we spend all, we spend, I think we waste enormous amounts of energy worrying about the federal government and what thinking that that's where we solve problems. That's right. where we solve issues. Right. right. And now there's all sorts of problems at the federal level, but that's, but mo- for most of us, it's outside of our jurisdiction. Right. But he did give us a jurisdiction. If we spend all our time worrying about somebody else's jurisdiction, we miss our own. Our job is to become wise in our own jurisdiction. Right. So that if let's say, you know, you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and it explodes while you're using it. Right. You don't need a lawsuit because right. you know what is, you know, the wisdom of the law. And yeah. so, you know, it's my job to pay it to, to pay him. I borrowed it and it yeah. broke while I was borrowing it. If you rented it from your neighbor and it That's broke right. while you rented it, then you know, you don't that it's his, it's That's his right. job. You don't owe him anything. You don't need to, you don't need lawsuits because you're wise or, if your neighbors have a spat, they know you're wise enough that they can come to you and both say, Hey, we need a neighbor's perspective. We're trying to figure this out. We need, can you help us? Right. You want to be that kind of guy on the block that can walk th- and walk through with the wisdom with people, right? So that, that, that the law is within you such that the world around you becomes more just, right? We used to do this thing with our kids when they would get into a spat um, with one another into <laughs> they get into a disagreement or it'd be like they couldn't figure it out you'd say okay well here we're gonna set up let's everybody come to the living room we'd set up the chairs and such and that um and aaron would be the judge my wife would be the judge who decided who got to speak when each and then all the other kids would be the jury and then each person got to give their side to the jury um, make their argument, and then they and they had to take a, a a vow beforehand to submit to whatever the jury decided, right? <laughs> and so they would each have to give their side, and then they would get to counter, or they would get to uh, ask each other questions, you know, and 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 then the jury would deliberate and make a decision. And and by the time you got to the end of it, everybody was back in fellowship. You're having so much fun, and the kids are learning how to think wisely through at, through things and um you know some of our greatest inside jokes have come from those issues but you know we realized it became unfair when my 17 year old started quoting aristotle at her little siblings <laughs> in those They're like okay this is not fair anymore but 
it was the whole the whole thing is you're trying to raise kids that never need a lawsuit because they have the law embedded in their hearts. Well, and uh, that this goes that back their, to- their, their, that their jurisdiction becomes just legal, gracious, joyful uh, because the law is written on their hearts and they love it. They love justice. They love mercy. And they, they know the difference. We should stop leaving law to experts. Mm-hmm. Right? Law <laughs> yeah. is not something that is for experts only. Law is for kings, right? <laughs> like that, right. That's where we are, right? That's what we are. You know, I wrote down here. Um, I, I have a new insult at now after our show today. Um, <laughs> one of my insults is to look at somebody and say, he won't be able to judge an angel. <laughs> yes, right, totally. Right? Because what is it you need to know in order to be able to judge angels, right? You got to think about that. And if you can't judge between your kids and you can't teach them God's standard, you can't judge between yourself and your neighbor, you can't judge between yourself and your boss, then you'll never be able to understand how to judge angels. Like that's some complicated stuff. Right. That's right, some pretty complicated right. stuff. So in this that we're learning now. So and the same way that uh, that common law has matured and is maturing and moving on through time. So should we so that when we come to a point, we'll be able to say, I know how to judge angels. Right. Right. <laughs> right? And so. um, But, yeah, I, I, we have left law to experts and yeah. we need to. Stop that. We need to get ourselves saturated and baptized in God's standards and God's law and the beauty of it and learn to enjoy it because it really is fun. Like it really is fun because it's not something that, oh, I need a case to happen. It really is just how you live and function every day. Yeah. Right. Like there's certain things I don't do because I'm considerate of the person who I might end up affecting if I do those things. Well, that I'm, I'm thinking through biblical standards of the axe head in that situation. I'm not intending to hurt anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. But if I do something too crazy, would it hurt somebody if it just happened to take place? Well, then I'm at fault for that, right? And so it teaches right. me a way to love my neighbor that is broad and effective and and people are looking for safety. It's safe because I'm thinking about those things and not being um, – because that's recklessness, right? <laughs> that's what's happening in that situation. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. Well, and I think it teaches you it, – it teaches you what is – what you're not allowed to do to your neighbor, right? That teaches you the limits, but it also gives love a definition. It gives love content. Yeah. Right. We always want to say, you know, Hey, go love your neighbor as yourself, but the law is what gives that love a a content. So what does it look like to love my neighbor? You know, when his, if, if I go out there and his, he, you know, he, he has accidentally left his, you know, say his, his bike out on the edge of the street where it could easily get stolen. Well, if you find somebody's donkey wandering through your yard, you're supposed to return it. And if you don't, no, no. then it's called HOA. <laughs> right. Exactly. We, we want to say, <laughs> we want to, we want to say what's whose, whose jurisdiction is that? Well, I know it's not mine. Right. But law, the, the law of love embraces jurisdictions embraces embraces your own jurisdiction so you start taking responsibility for your actions and and then you start taking responsibility for your neighbors because they're your neighbors right that's where's my jurisdiction well my neighbors are my 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 family my neighbors right the jurisdictions work out but we want to work from the out 
from the top down rather than from mm. our personal jurisdiction out, which is what love embraces joyfully its jurisdiction mm. and then works out and says, Oh my gosh, my, my neighbor left his garage door open accidentally. Um, I should pop over and, you know, close it or text him and say, Hey, my man, you left your garage door open. Did you want it open or you want me to close it? Can I do right that you just, your eyes, when you embrace your jurisdiction, joyfully learn the law it lifts your eyes to be able to love your neighbor because now love has a content. Love has, mm. has content, you know, um, the, and that's, uh, that's where, um, you know, you start to say like, dang, my love is weak. Right. Mm-hmm. My love is, is, is a flickering yeah. flame that does not burn hot. It's almost lawless. Uh, and, right. And so then you can, and then you ask God to forgive you and, ask God to grow it and ask God to, because you, because when you start learning the law, you, you find your own, your own sinfulness real quick. Um, But that's what Jesus died. Right. So the, the study of the law becomes a joy because it's, Oh my gosh, look at another way. God has been gracious to me. And then you learn how to be gracious and loving to others as well. Where does, where does metaphysics fit into law? Well, it's, that's, that's what natural law is. Our, our metaphysical nature when used properly is will flourish. The law is a description of how to use your own nature properly. Use the neighbor of your nature. Well, when it's well-written law or when it's well, that's how that's kind of how, you know, so like right now people are writing laws on what they have to do to take care of the poor. Like I just read an article talking about uh, London Johnson's uh, London B. Johnson on the war on poverty. Well, that did not create human flourishing at all. Right. And so as we aligned ourselves with that, you can tell that the reality of how we're made and what he tried to do just don't go together. Right. Well, yeah, at some point we should talk about how much money was poured into like the Bauhaus architectural movement by the, by the, um, by that war on poverty that created the projects. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where the projects came from. Right. There weren't projects before that. In fact, they knocked down a bunch of a, a bunch of black neighborhoods with uh, single family homes uh, where you had mother and father and children you know, living together, owning property and yeah. get, getting that that economic leg up that property ownership gives. They knocked all that down in order to put up big Bauhaus projects um, and experiment on on the poor. But that's what happens uh, when the government is interfering in something that they don't need to be interfering in. Right. Right. Like that's, right. Yeah. They're stepping outside their jurisdiction. And so people won't flourish. Yeah. Right? And that's what we want. Right. We want people everywhere to flourish. We want people to have the freedom to grow in wisdom, which means the freedom to sometimes make terrible decisions so that they can grow in wisdom. You know, and right? that's, that's on the other side of it too. You know, I see right now and we should, we're two hours and 14 minutes <laughs> once again, but what I see too, a lot of black people complaining that the government handed out and helped middle-class suburbia. Um, and so they wanted the same sort of handouts and hand ups that they gave them. But I, I want to contend that those middle-class suburban handouts weren't helping. It all does the same thing. And so now what you create is a they think they're accumulating wealth, but actually they're making a soft and weak people. 
right? <laughs> They're making a right. docile and weak people because they didn't get it. They didn't develop it. They didn't work on it. They didn't have their hands in the dirt. And so what they got was a soft, and that's why we look at middle classness really soft. They became soft and they, now they became people who work for everybody else and they're not now, you know, they're actually very fragile. And so you have this one group of people who didn't have the handouts that know how to hustle. 2020 hits and everybody who's hustling is like, ain't nothing really changed. We've been hustling. So hustling been the same for us. Yeah. <laughs> you got rich people where they're insulated. They're like, well, we've been making everything. We ain't getting, and, and then you got this gooey middle, this gooey middle right. of people that uh, hoarded all melt, the toilet tissue paper. under the heat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, t- that's totally it. And what's, it, what's really interesting. Part of the reason the middle class is going away is because it was easy to get in. It's right. To the middle class. And then once you were there, you just settled in. And there wasn't anybody that said, oh, man, I got into a single family home with an unfinished basement because the government provided a bunch of them. Yeah. And who's providing the next group, the single family home with the unfinished basement, mm. no yard. You know, mm. There's no place. There's no entry point. All the entry points got plugged up by people that got into the entry point and then just settled. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I didn't yeah. like the law. Like the law was a horrible law saying you can't sell houses to black people. Right. right. But, but that might've been a blessing in disguise. <laughs> right. Like, because what you end up seeing. So, you know, you look at black wall street, we got to quit. You look at black wall street and nothing was handed to them in the worst right. possible environment you can have. And because of, you know, you got a couple things that happen. You have, you know, um, Indians who own slaves who had land and all of a sudden black people get land in, in Oklahoma because they open it up. So that, that, and then, but you still had to work the land. You still had to do something with it. Um, and then you have these, um, self-sufficient, almost Malcolm X thinking type of black man that come into Oklahoma that say, this is going to be the new Mecca, right? This yeah. is, and so we're going to work our, and you know what? We don't need none from nobody. We, we, they couldn't even. Voting wasn't a thing. They couldn't do it. That already yeah. happened, fell apart in the Louisiana Colfax situation. So they're not doing it, but they built such an institution and industry there that it was self-sufficient and sustaining. It wasn't any way to tear and break it down apart from the lack of justice being implemented right. and applying yeah. equally under the law. That was the only thing that that failed was not having equal opportunity under the law. Right. There, there wasn't justice. So, hey, had those folks been confident that justice would have been done, they yeah. wouldn't have ever attacked. Ex- right? That's exactly knew, right. They, they knew they were going to be able to get away with it. That's right. And that's where the, that's where the problem was, is you had that justice ceased to be blind under modernism. And here's right? the deal. It wasn't just lack of justice for black people. So in Black Wall Street. Preceding that, just a few months before the destruction of it, there was a white guy going around killing people in taxis and he got busted. The people were outraged and he went to jail. Put a pause in that. Just a little bit before that, a few criminals in this jail escaped out of the fourth or fifth story window. They fixed the, the bars and then six more criminals escaped. People had lost all sorts of respect for their sheriff and the law there because he wasn't upholding the law there. He was flimsy. Yeah. And so when this guy who killed this taxi driver and was robbing his taxi drivers got caught, they didn't think that there was going to be any justice done to this guy. And so a mob of people 
I should mention that the KKK kind of had a nice little handle there in in Oklahoma. Nonetheless, yeah. Black Wall Street still flourished. But because of this, the mob shows up to the police station, to the to the sheriff's office, grab the guy and publicly lynch this white guy. So the the people are already outraged over the lack of law and civility inside of there. Right. <laughs> they take over and become a law unto themselves. And lynched the guy, and the police were the ones out there directing traffic for the lynching. Right. So it's not that law just wasn't being applied to black people. It wasn't. But it wasn't being applied across the board to anybody at that point. So, of course, the minorities are going to suffer. And and the thing is, when, when when you've got a blind justice, right, then it gives people the ability to, or, it blind justice treats everyone like humans. Right. Right. And so when you've got some, a criminal, it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside, they're treated like humans. What happens is the, as that enlightenment mentality and the modernism mentality takes over and scientism takes over justice ceases to be able to say we're confident. Everyone is the same. Mm. Everyone's a human. Everyone's the same. Because science science says you got to deal with people. You you've got to look at the externals, and you know find and that's how you define people. You, there's not an internal nature, human nature that everyone shares anymore. You've got just externals, and so people start judging according to skin color. Like that's not a, um, you don't have that all throughout history. You have that post enlightenment, post modernism, right? You have the definition of races by skin color after modernism because they've lost that belief that there is a nature inside that everyone shares, right? That that's, that's a distinctly Christian understanding that is brought into the law. Um, right. You get old Roman law, right? There was citizens and there were barbarians. Yeah. The barbarians didn't get law, right? They didn't get equal treatment under the law. Right. Right. Um, so that distinctly Christian understanding that everyone gets equal treatment under the law is a is is what gives everybody the opportunity to flourish, mm. right? Um, everybody the opportunity to overcome their circumstances, and uh, the, when when we say, well, the government ought to give these people preferential treatment, um, like it did in the when it was giving white people preferential treatment. To then turn around and say, well, now it ought to give somebody else preferential right. treatment to make up for it. It that's also not going to lead to human flourishing. No, and we Equal know what that leads to under the law is a, a Christian understanding, and um, the the law's job is to you know, and you know, there's definitely a lot of discussions that we need to have about what does it look like to restore and you know, to restore property that was taken and um those are complex important discussions but unless we're we're getting at the equal treatment under the law um you can't you foundation know that is foundational to common law you you can't solve any of the other problems either jason we're not even ready to have those conversations because we are no i know severing ourselves from common law all the way you know this is you can't I think the fear that people have with having those conversations on reparations and restitution, I'll say it again, it's coming because of we 
don't know how to answer the question, so we got to get away from it and get away from mm-hmm. law. The law actually has an answer for that. Biblical law absolutely has an answer for that. Common law has yep. an answer for that too. But the problem is if you, you can't answer those questions if you're not a theonomist. Like you have to hold <laughs> to um, an objective theonomic understanding of law to be able to answer those questions properly. You know, you have to. Somebody yeah. just bought me some Chick Fil A. Look at God. That's that's the <laughs> thank you, Anna. Just just put Chick Fil A right up here. You know what that means? I got to go. Yeah, because that's a law that you have to eat Chick Fil A hot. It's a, it's a it positive is. law, but it's it very is. true. It's positive. <laughs> nah, man. But yeah, I, I, you know we 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 can. These are not hard. And I'm watching people fight the social justice movement with absolutely n- autonomy. Yeah, it's like They're, you're gonna lose. They're they're arguing we ought to go back to Kant because social the social yes <laughs> social justice and you're like mm, and then when I sit up here and ask guys you know hey are you a theonomist or not they're like ah you know I don't know about that I was like what are you talking about do you think that you're going to be able to really fight against the so- the social justice movement the woke movement this is kind of why, the, why we're having this conversation because I'm realizing like you know these guys are thinking in a whole different way. I don't even know if they know why they're thinking it, but some of the way that they think it, I think I'm finding conflicts with. And I don't know if I'm honest with you. I'm like, why? Why are their positions wrong? Ultimately, right? Yeah. Because the way that we fight back, it's it's almost like we're arguing over the flavor of vanilla. It's not yeah. an objective standard. We fight back with subjectivity, right? And the the best thing that we have to fight back with, I think, is that we have some historical foundations inside of the American Constitution, which I think is great. But we have excommunicated that from common law, which goes back to Christianity, right? Right. And every Christian right. seems to be afraid to use Christian standards as law, right? Like they, they are afraid to because they don't know how to, you know, work those things out. You know, they don't know yeah. how, how it applies case law. They don't know how to do it. Right. And, and this is, this is what I mean. We're going back to Kant where Kant, he puts Christianity in the numinal realm mm. that is separate from the phenomenal realm with the, where, where the, the realm in which we can interact and have experiences where our senses are the way that we gain knowledge. So the numinal realm is you, he puts religion up there. He puts metaphysics up there. That those, those are things that we don't gain access to with our senses. And then, and then everything we gain access to with our senses, we have to use sci- the scientific method for, right? And so he separates those two things. And so we're uncomfortable saying, well, God's law mm. should affect mm. our understanding of justice. Um, because we have assumed that Kantian bifurcation of noumenal phenomenal. Mm. Um, and, but the problem is a lot of conservatives are trying to argue for it again, where the social justice folks, they've rejected it, but replaced it with understandings of power and power differential. Yeah. That, um, and we say, well, we don't, we're not going to, we we're not going to interact on power differentials, right? That's not good. That's not right. Um, but then we're trying to back up into Kant. And so we say, Oh, but we actually need to back up into, mm. I think a historic common law um, tradition that says, well, no, let's talk jurisdictions, mm. right? Let's talk like, like we can, we can talk jurisdictions all day long. So power differential, um, it, that's a, that's a real thing in terms of like social interactions and stuff um but uh 
so if 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 uh, if we've got a situation with a with an inverted power differential, uh, all sorts of things cause problems, right? So you've got you know a, a guy who's the manager hitting on the girl who's who is the waitress. She's in an inverted power differential where she feels like I'm my job is a threat if I don't respond, right? That's that's a a, a bad situation, right? Well, what is who has the jurisdiction to go to go solve it, right? That's mm-hmm. that's where the question comes in. Mm-hmm. If he acts uh, in such a way that that she loses finances because of the power differential, right? Then you've got civil a civil case, right? Because that's uh, if she's just uncomfortable with it, right? You've got brothers, dads. That's right. right. That step in and say, "Hey, this is there's an inverted power differential. It's I'm going to come in here and explain that I don't want you acting according to it anymore." And you might be right? losing a few fingers. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but who else has jurisdiction? The waiter, right? The waiter that's standing next to her. That's right. He has jurisdiction because that's her. That's his neighbor. He should go talk to the manager and say, "Hey, man, you know the situ- how awkward of a situation you're putting her in, right? She's she's my." She's my neighbor, mm-hmm. right? Right. But we have we have we have said who has jurisdiction, whoever has the high, where's the highest level of power that we can get to, to get involved. That's good, Jason. We stopped thinking in terms of jurisdictions and said whose jurisdiction is it? There's all sorts of people for whom that sister is their jurisdiction because they're her keeper, mm. right? And the manager, maybe he doesn't realize it. And somebody points it out to him and he's, and he can just be like, Oh my gosh, you're totally right. I totally overstepped my bounds. Maybe he doesn't. And you get, and you've got to figure out within the business. Is there, I mean, it's important for businesses to have really clear ways that they deal with power differentials because they're real. Right. But the question of jurisdiction is how you, how you deal with that in a way that, um, that is not being dealt with within the social justice categories because they think in terms of power differentials only. And so then they think you solve a power differential by getting a bigger power. Well, and they want to obliterate the intent ultimately is to obliterate jurisdictions, right? Yeah. The the intent is to completely obliterate so they can put a new jurisdiction in place. Right. But a lot of the social justice folks don't realize that, but that is where like um, queer theory, critical theory, critical race theory, all of the, the it, within that theory is embedded a desire to, to destroy all jurisdictions and re-relate everything in terms of power. But we're, but those things are in conflict now, right? We haven't lost that, but the, but we don't restore it by trying to get the federal government to start acting in their jurisdiction without also just dealing in our own jurisdictions properly. But that's all we've ever done. Right. So that's all we, when yeah. you get away from common law, like ever since the revolution, that's all we've ever done. And revolution, I'm putting at 1860, eight, 1861, eight, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. that. That's, yeah. Since then, that's all we've ever known. And so that's why I think people really have to read Doug a little different, Doug Wilson a little different on this topic. Like it or disagree, whatever. He's making a point here, I think, that few people, um, uh, age of entitlement, um, he makes the point too in his book that he puts it the civil rights movement where, and I think that those civil rights movement and the revolution are a sandwich. 
One side. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right, right. Starts the whole thing, gets it ready. The other side, Slather gets it ready too, and it comes together. And what you have in here is laws completely obliterated by one law, institution, institutionalizing a system, and then a domino effect to the culture because of it. Right. So you get. Yeah. Well, that's interesting too, because both of those used Christians and used the church. Yes. And even the language of the church, but by the end had squeezed out all the Christianity from it. All the Christianity. That's really interesting. I didn't have, have to think about that. Yeah. We have to, t- we'll talk about that in one time. Okay. My Chick fil A is getting yeah. cold. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> go, go. 